podcast is brought to you by With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. It's not my intention to do this in front of you. For that, I'm sorry. But you can take my word for it. Your mother had it coming. film from groundbreaking writer and director Quentin Tarantino, Kill Bill, Volume 1, starring Uma Thurman, Lucy Liu, and Vivica A. Fox in an astonishing action-packed thriller about brutal betrayal and an epic vendetta. Four years after taking a bullet in the head at her own wedding, the bride emerges from a coma and decides it's time for payback with a vengeance. Having been gunned down by her former boss and lover and his deadly squad of international assassins, it's a killer-be-killed fight she didn't start but is determined to finish. Loaded with explosive action and outrageous humor, it's a must-see motion picture event that has critics everywhere raving. Miramax Films, A Band Apart, and The Church of Tarantino Podcast presents The Kill Bill Volume 1 20th Anniversary Celebration. Here comes the bride. Welcome all you inglorious bastards to a very special episode of the Church of Tarantino Podcast. I'm the Reverend Scott K, and I want to thank all of you for joining us as we celebrate the 20th anniversary of the release of our Lord and Savior, Quentin Tarantino's first half of his fourth film, his samurai kung fu western revenge flick, Kill Bill Volume 1. Joining me to help celebrate and take a retrospective look back on this landmark film are the chaps from the Asian Cinema Film Club Podcast, Sir Elwood Jones and Sir Stephen Palmer, and the co-host of the Bachata Talk Podcast, Mr. Frank Hannon. Welcome back, gentlemen. M.A. Tarantino, be with you always. Also with you. Thank you. I have no American-born guests on today. I think it's fantastic. I got two English and yeah. one from originally from the Dominican Republic. <laughs> now he's in Florida, so he does kind of go half and half as half Dominican, half Florida, man. So look. Um, half and half. <laughs> gentlemen, welcome back. You guys have actually been on this podcast quite a bit this first half of the season, as we are kind of at the turning point. This is the six-month mark of season two, which is actually kind of befuddling for me, because I didn't know what the hell I was going to do with season two, and now I'm almost halfway through it, and I've already got season three planned, so. Wow. Holy shit, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so much has happened, too. We've You know, uh, as we record just yesterday, the world lost the great fictional character Rick Dalton. 
apparently of old age. I could be honest yeah. with you. All the drinking he did in the first couple of years of his life, I have no way he made the fucking 90. There's no way cirrhosis did not get him in at least the mid-90s, <laughs> if not early 2000s. Good good for Rick, Rick Dalton to have lived 90 years in Rick fictional life. Dalton. Rick fucking Dalton. Here's to Rick. We've also been announced that there's going to be a new movie coming out. Apparently the TV show. Fuck that. And it won't be Kill Bill Volume 3. So all very, very strange things happening in the world of Tarantino, but would not be Tarantino without it. I would like to ask a quick brief question before I get into what you guys do. Is there a bigger fandom that gives blue balls more like Tarantino fandom? Because there's been a lot of things over the years of being a fan that have been announced that's going to happen. There's going to be a Vega Brothers movie. There's going to be Kill Bill Volume 3. There's going to be all kinds of things. And then all of a sudden... Nada. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. There is so much that's been in the ether that was supposed to happen that does not happen. I cannot think of another fandom that gives you blue balls like being a Tarantino fan. He does pay off, but... The only director I can... So I know fandom, big thing. And I think possibly if we did this five or six years ago, it might be a bit different. But now Disney Plus just pumps everything out for everybody. And <laughs> the Star Wars and Marvel fandoms yes. are so after. But I'd say the only other director a bit like that is um, Guillermo del Toro, who seems to be associated with a million different projects <laughs> on the go all the time. I'm sure he's even got yeah. a Wikipedia page of things he's never actually done anything about. So, yeah. but but I know I know what you mean. You know, it's it's all part of the. There's a, there's a big hype wagon. Mr. Tarantino is very good at the self-publication. Oh, and, and, and absolutely he is. puts this stuff out there and keeps us interested. I think maybe back then there was definitely the whole blue ball thing you're saying, but I think after a while the, the fans were like, yeah, maybe another 10 years and we might see something. <laughs> <you know? laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, here we are on the 20th anniversary special for Cuba Volume 1, and he originally had said that after 10 years he would bring out Volume 3 because he wanted to do, I, I forget which... Uh, spaghetti Western um, series he was talking about that did the similar thing where they joined the movie again 10 years later, like they actually went with the story 10 years later, and he wanted to do the same kind of thing. He wanted to then finish it up with whatever happens between Bernita Green's daughter and obviously the bride and then her daughter. So 2013 came, and it went, and now here we are in 2023, and I don't see it ever happening. Maybe it'll happen in a, in a novel form. Maybe I know a lot of my guests have said they hope that uh, maybe he'll write it and they'll do the anime. Like they'll just use the animation group to yeah, do it. Yeah. And I think that'd be fantastic because uh, you could really still use the voice actors. You know, the real actors as the voice actors wouldn't matter their age at that point, really, unless they're you know started smoking heavy and they got even worse. But I don't know. I guess I guess one day we will see. But this is a uh, this is the blue ball. So we are uh, full in, full in. Because let me tell you what: once he puts the last movie out, be all kinds of projects alluded to and maybe yeah. I'll come back or maybe I won't retire and all this other shit. So yeah. the blue balls are, are here to stay until he is in the ground <laughs> and you know he's in the ground because he could even fake that too. He could fake that too. He could do yeah. a whole bride thing. I'm coming pie man, punch yeah. his way out. Next thing you know, he's fucking there like David fucking, uh, what was it, David Copperfield and shit. Lonely grave of Quentin Tarantino. I think the the key thing with Tarantino is because he's always remained so so part of the pop culture conscious that this is why he's like so renowned for blue balling us. I mean, you go back to the nineties and like Robert Rodriguez had a slew of projects he was working on. Uh, Darren Aronofsky has been for years blue balling me, saying he's going to do Lone Wolf and Cub and Flicker. Both projects have failed to ever materialize outside of the nineties, um, and yet he like goes off and like does things like The Wrestler and Black Swan, which he just produces out of nowhere. And it's like, 
what happened to Flickr? <laughs> no move and cub. Um, these projects I really got excited about. So I think it's with Tarantino, as I said, because he's since like exploding into the pop culture conscious, he's never left it. And I think because he's he's a man of so many different uh, strings. I mean, as I said, it's because he's can be brought in to talk about film. He's not just a, f- a film director. He's an opinionated guy, which also keeps him on, at the forefront when you look at his contemporaries. They're more just like wanting to get on with their craft. Tarantino has always like been one wanting to talk to people about film or be making film or just involved in film in some way. So I think that's why we've always sort of like been more aware of what he's been working on. And that's why it's always yeah. sort of stung more when something has failed to materialize, such as like Black Crow, Bill Bill Volume 3, um, and obviously uh, the Vega Brothers, which could still happen. Like I said, he's writing a novel. So this Rick Dalton death is a bit, as you said, a bit of a stunt because he has written a book, his third book, or he has written it. Whether it's going to get published or not, I don't know, but I know he's written a book where he wrote an autobiography on the life and career of Rick Dalton. So this is kind of closing that out, which would then maybe end the book, and then he'll write that, whatever, in. And then I think it's sometime next year or maybe after this movie or TV show or play or puppet show or picture pages. I have no idea. Flip book, whatever he's going to do next, maybe this will come out. but Or maybe it's dead just like Rick Dalton now. So, anyways, we're not here to talk about Rick Dalton. He's fucking dead. Gentlemen, I'm going to go in the order in which you came into this meet. So, we're going to start with you, Mr. Frank Hannon. What is your lasting impression or first recollection of this film, of seeing Kill Bill Volume 1? All right. So, when I first saw the film, I didn't know what to expect because it felt like it was going to be completely different than anything that I had seen from Tarantino. So, I didn't know how much I was going to like it. Because the only, you know, martial arts stuff that I was watching before in the Dominican Republic, in dubbed in Spanish, was like Bruce Lee films and Jackie Chan films, mostly that my uncle would play. So I was fucking happy as fuck when I saw it. I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. We didn't see it when it came out. We saw it on uh, on DVD, and we saw it right when the second one was about to come out. So I fucking remember that we saw it in the fucking cliffhanger, and my mom was like, oh, hell no, we're going to the movies. And I had to work, so she took all my brothers to see the fucking movie, and I had to work, and I was like, damn it, you know? So, yeah, that my, I, I was really happy when I saw it. It was a great experience. I liked it more than I thought I would. Mr. Stephen Palmer, how about for you? When you first recall seeing the film, and what impression did it leave on it? And were you also left behind because you were a working age and your parents took someone else younger? No. So I saw it when it came out at the cinema. I was really excited. So I'd seen, you know, I'd been, I'd been on the I've been on this uh, this train for a while, so I'd seen. Um, I had I, I didn't see Reservoir Dogs when it came up. We got we had that at university. That was like there was some kind of local showing, and then obviously we're all into Pulp Fiction. So I was dead excited about this. We were there opening night for um, for this movie, and I just remember. I think I might have even mentioned this last on the last time I was on, mate. But the when it just slipped into that anime anime moment. <laughs> This is this is a different sort of film, and, and and I've said before, this is my favorite Tarantino film, right? And I left thinking that, and clearly in twenty years, nothing's really changed my mind. Even a rewatch, it's still, you know, it's it's mega flawed, and also it's kind of maybe got me looking at some other things as well, not just the obvious influences, but I think yeah, I think I think it sort of opened my mind a bit to other movies that he's referencing or referencing of references that kind of thing so yeah i was i was i was on it 
on it on day one and couldn't wait for the second one to come out. <laughs> Mr. Jones, how about you? It's like, Stephen, I saw this night one. Um, I remember like all the hype that was coming out because we actually got pretty well serviced with all the hype material for this coming out. Um, there was a bunch of uh, articles and things that came out in the sort of like papers leading up to it. So there was grand information and things such as like sight and sound and stuff. We're doing like looking at the inspirations going into this film, and it was sort of like everything was sort of like playing into the things that was obviously a big fan of, and obviously like Pop Samurai movies and Kung Fu, and it sort of like was really very much in my wheelhouse and. This is even before you know that you're going to have things such as like the anime flashback from production IG. And it's sort of like when you watch it, it only sort of further adds in all these sort of elements. So seeing this on obviously on night one, I was just like, I just had an absolute blast with this one. It was all like hit so many of the notes that I just love. And I remember like going to the bathroom after this and there's two guys in there and they were like, well, that sucked. And I was like, did we just see like the same movie here? It's like, <laughs> this was such like, a fun time and i don't know whether it's because they went into it thinking oh it's gonna be like rest of our dogs pulp fiction it's gonna have like cordial dialogue and we're gonna have like all these like pop culture things and with kill bill it's very much a different uh different beast it was obviously like the same as when you look at like capable eight and um django it's tarantino paying homage to a genre rather than creating his own genre within an established field which he was obviously doing when he was reinventing the crime movie with Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. And it's, I think, as I said, it was that sort of disappointment, which I think sort of hit quite a few people. But for myself, I was like, you know, how can you not like this? This is just so yeah. funny and violent. It's kind of like a kung fu version of Evil Dead. I think this is also his most accessible film, especially volume one. I think if of all the, you don't have to be a huge fan of Tarantino, but I think you can truly enjoy this film just on its own merits. Uh, whether you like crime or not, you know, I think just because of how much fun this movie is and how quick and action-packed it is, I feel like this is one of the most accessible films Tarantino has ever made. Now, I normally don't answer these opening questions. However, my journey to Kill Bill is a little different because 20 years ago today, as we speak, I was in Iraq during the Iraq War. I had read the script to this probably about a year prior. You know, that's back when it still would get leaked online and he wouldn't fucking shit himself. You know what I mean? He would not blow a gasket. And there's a couple of things that have changed, and I talked about it last year, but Gogo has a sister in the original script. And the moment, right after she fights Vernita Green, she actually gets attacked in the city by her sister, who's come back for revenge. They took that stuff out. They kind of took some of the stuff that is, I think her name was Yuki. I think it was an homage to, obviously, the main character from Lady Snowblood. But the scene where Gogo stabs the young gentleman and then disembowels him and who's penetrating who now, that was something that her sister did in an American bar while she was trying to find out where the bride was. So I was in Iraq when this came out. So I actually saw this movie. This is amazing. On a black market DVD that was in Arabic subtitles. Whoa. You know, they got it from like through Kuwait or whatever. So I got to see it in Iraq, you know, not in the theater. But I got home in time because that came out in September of 2003. And then obviously in April, Volume 2 came out in 2004. I got back in March. So right at the end of March, we were on a month off before we had to come back after being gone. They re-released Kill Bill Volume 1, which is lucky as shit where I was. I was in the fucking asshole of the South. I was in Columbus, Georgia. It's on the border of uh, Alabama and Georgia on the west. It, there's a the thing called the Chattahoochee River runs through it. Like If there wasn't the military base there, nothing would be there. So it's near Fort Benning, Georgia, and they happened to re-release it. And so I got to see it, and then obviously I went to see Kill Bill Volume 2 the night 
it came out. So my original viewing of this was in Iraq in the desert on some some dusty ass blue uh, DVD that had the weirdest subtitles, but I got a chance to see it. So that's the only reason I stepped in to answer my version because it's a long way around to see this fucking movie. So I was able to see it eventually in the theater for good. Was it one of those bootlegs where you see people walking across? The <laughs> it was close. Movie? It was close. But it, it was funny because it had like someone went took the time to author the DVD and like try to, oh, it was awful. Like some of the translations were awful because like, you know, you have the translations up there in English and yeah. then there, it was just, it was unbelievably terrible. I mean, I still loved it, but I was finally glad to see it when I got back yeah. to actually fully see it as opposed right. to just seeing this awful desert blue or uh, DVD. Blu-ray wasn't even thought of back then. So, anywho. So, Mr. Elwood, do you consider Kill Me to be one or two separate films? Uh, Kill Bill is very much two separate films. It's uh, defined, the line between the genres is very clear. I mean, Kill Bill 1 is his Eastern, Kill Bill 2 is his Western. And while there's obviously elements of part one which carry across into part two, such as Pai Mei, which is more sort of like backstory, the majority of it is that is a modern day Western, uh, the stuff with Bud. And I think all the elements that would have made it more feel like one movie were sort of removed during the production. I mean, the fact that uh, Elwyn the Bride was supposed to have a sword fight was removed. Uh, the end fight scene was supposed to be the bride in a wedding dress fighting against Bill. Again, another sword fight, which was removed for that really stupid ending. And that's also where that wonderful uh, poster came from, the bride in the wedding dress with the samurai sword. And so I think, as I said, it's very much, uh, it is two separate movies, but they obviously come together to form one complete story. And I think that's why the split works so well with where you look at where part one ends and then part one, two picks up. I think, yes, I said, it, it works so it works so well having that split rather than if we viewed this as one complete film it would is kind of jarring and i think the only reason it works now is because we know there's the switch in genre um i mean a lot of people were very disappointed with two because they went in they saw like the crazy 88 fight they went to part two thinking oh how's he going to top this and he doesn't he has nothing that comes close to that that sequence um and yes you can watch the whole bloody affair which puts the two films together and gives you the Japanese cut, the House of Blue Leaves sequence. And it's really fun. But as I said, I always view them as two separate movies. And I think also I've returned to part one a lot more than I've returned to part two. So that's probably the other reason I view them as two separate movies. So, Mr. Hannon. Well, I mean, I wonder if if uh, most people will see it as two if they didn't have that major cliffhanger at the end there. Because I know you talked about how in the original script it wasn't revealed. And I, and obviously I, I wonder if he only did that to make to make the two volumes work, right? Um, if it was all one whole story, there would be no ending to the first part. How would it, you know, it would just be a next scene, I guess, or some fucking shit. I do view it as one film that was breaking up into two parts. That's how I see it, you know? But I do think that the main reason is the 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 fucking cliffhanger because it completely separates it to I imagine that that's why part two starts the way it does. I don't know if that was in the script as well. Uh, Uma fucking driving and saying like, hey, I'm about to kill this motherfucker. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I don't know if that was added because of the cliffhanger. So, you know what I'm saying? But uh, it definitely feels like two because they're fucking completely different, you know? So that's my take. Mr. Palmer. So when I was re-watching these last week, I, I watched them both, and I went to Reddit, which I know is a terrible idea, because I, I <laughs> typed in, 
What's better? Reddit feels like it's the first slide into the dark web. You know, it's like, hey, where's the dark web? Go to Reddit and you'll go down the drain and you'll eventually wind up in the dark web. Well, there's a point to this. But the the reason I did it was I was interested in why Kill Bill Volume 2 didn't sell as many tickets as Kill Bill Volume 1. And basically, so the question I ask is, is which is better, Kill Bill Volume 1, Kill Bill Volume 2? And I've learned very strongly... There are three answers to this question. <laughs> it's Kill Bill Volume 1, it's Kill Bill Volume 2, or Shut the Fuck Up, they're one film. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and and that's the order of angriness that those answers come attached with, that people who believe it's one film tend to get really angry about it, and those that prefer Kill Bill Volume 2 are quite angry about it because I think they're having to make their case harder. But to me... Yeah, it's a quant- I have a quantum state. I think both things are true. I think they are. I think they're both separate films. If they were to be one complete movie to be viewed, you no, know, we can obviously put the DVDs on one after the other. I know there's. I know Tarantino has got a cut that he has shown, hasn't he? That's put together. But for example, I think there's repetition. So I don't think you could have both the scene in the pussy wagon where she's laying there trying to get all her feet to work again, and a scene where she's buried alive and she's trying to punch her way out of it. They, To me, although they're very different, they're very similar. She's lying on her back trying yeah, to get yeah. moving again. And then, so have, watching them six months apart, I'm all right with that. Because they're filmed in very different ways, but they're the same thing, really, right? I think, um, you know, and, and then you've got training sequences. Training sequences of Poma, you've got training sequences in the first half of the film as well. I just don't know if it would be a particularly satisfying four hours with a lot of repetition in there. I think you'd have to cut bits out, put bits, move it around. But that's okay. That's that. That's what a director... Well, maybe not a director's cut, but there's, 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 there's some <laughs> kind of cut that you could put together to make it... I think Elwood's quite right that 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 crazy 88 fight, you know, which has given me all sorts of come dine with me and Shaw Brothers feels as well as the Japanese feels, having that in the first half of a longer film would be to its detriment, yeah? Because... It works so much better as a kind of climactic third act, sort of something we've we've been built up to. So I haven't really answered the question. I've just said both <laughs> things are true. That's all right. <laughs> we talked about something on uh, uh, my cheeky bastards and Steve. Uh, tap danced around the whole thing, mm-hmm. and I said it was very political of you, Steve. You basically <laughs> answered the question without ever answering the question. I don't know if you said anything. Right? So it's fantastic. Uh, here's what I'll say: the uh, film was originally supposed to be one film. It was broken into two because of the amazing. Weinstein, you know the Weinstein brothers. Those, those he, he shall not be those named. American icons, <laughs> of, of American cinema, icons. Yeah. Those fucks. They told him he had to cut the film down. So Tarantino came up with basically a compromise. The compromise being, I will split the film into two volumes. Now, when you start volume one, as you did, that's the original cut. He had to go back to Sally Menke and say, we've got to cut this motherfucker into two. So in the opening of it, it says Tarantino's fourth film. When we open volume two, it does not say fifth film. It doesn't say shit. It just says volume two. Obviously added. The stuff added at the end of volume one is the cliffhanger. Technically, maybe we get some of Sophie. Maybe I, I'm forgetting because I haven't read the, the original screenplay in quite some time. I don't remember if Sophie Fatel does talk to Bill or not to tell him the stuff. But Bill does not say a single thing to her. Does she know her daughter's still alive? That obviously is the cliffhanger to bring you back for volume two. Have to add that in. Totally understand it. I hate it. I don't like it because, as I've said before, the best part about reading the script was thinking the entire time I'm reading it, his daughter's dead. When she makes the corner in volume two with the gun to get Bill 
and BB goes bang, bang, that emotional roller coaster you see on her face, that's the time she learns about it. The reason it's such impactful in the film is because it was filmed as one film. So she has no idea that it's going to be broken up or she's going to have this whole little thing she has to do in the beginning of this volume two. So she's expecting that the first time she sees BB is in that moment. And that's the first time us as the audience is supposed to see BB and know that she's alive, which then makes it interesting. We're going to get into in a little bit is then you learn that the rest of the film, how we've been championing her. She's just been killing motherfuckers for literally no reason. They literally did not do what she thought she did. See, I mean, maybe they deserve to die for, for, you know, betraying her, but she, they did not kill her daughter. So the opening of that too, of volume two, the thing you talked about, Frank, I hate that as well, but that had to be added in, in order to catch Damn. people. Cause let's be honest, human beings, <laughs> even now, 20 years later are fucking <laughs> stupid. All right. So even though it was six months in between, we had to make sure that, hey, do you remember the movie saw just literally six months ago? Like, uh, literally six months ago. Well, guess what? Here's what had to happen. That's why in the beginning of TV shows, in case you forgot about last week, here's what happened the last time on Bonanza. It's like, fucking Christ almighty. Act as spoilers. When they say previously, they'll show like a character from season one, and you're like, oh, this motherfucker's coming back. Thanks, Netflix. Now, if you see, obviously, volume one, Chapter one. Volume two starts with chapter six. So it is 10 chapters if you put it all together. I think it's a happy accident, to be honest with you. Now, obviously, here on the Church of Tarantino, have we hoard ourselves out to use both volumes? You bet your ass we have. Next year, will we have a 20th anniversary for volume two? You bet your ass we will. So we're whoring ourselves out just as much as Tarantino did. But I think to Elwood's point, I think it's a happy accident that happened, even though the wine scenes are pieces of shit. Them forcing Tarantino to make a decision. I can split this in half. Helps with the tonal shift. Because you, you're you probably right. If it does end at the House of Blues. Well, I've seen enough times where they're both together. I haven't seen the whole bloody fair. That's another thing that was Blue Balls. 2006 <laughs> was supposed to be released on DVD. Here we are 17 years later. It's never seen the light of day. And that was announced by Tarantino himself. He has his own copy that he shows every now and again at the New Beverly. So maybe it'll come out this year. Maybe we'll get to see the 20th anniversary now that they're both going to be out. But it's a happy accident. It gives you the Eastern and the Western version. And I think then, do you enjoy Kung Fu movies and, and uh, or Samurai movies, as you say, more? Do you like Eastern movies more? Or are you a fan of Spaghetti Westerns? Because if you're a fan of Spaghetti Westerns, to Mr. Palmer's point, the people who fight about Volume 2 being the best, I guarantee you most of them are Spaghetti Western fans. And those who say Volume 1's the best is people like me who are big fans of, like, I was a huge fan of Kung Fu Theater back in the day here in America. So that was kind of like, they were speaking my language when I saw Volume 1. And then there's the people who, I could be that dick, but I look, I don't care. I, I'm just glad we got the movies. just an extra movie to get to see. So, however, I guess the honest answer is originally it was supposed to be one film. A lot of things happened to change it. And now we have two volumes and the Church of Tarantino is dipping in with both feet to make sure we cover it all. So I have content to keep pushing out just like Tarantino himself. All right, let's wrap up these final questions before we get into our discussion. Gentlemen, we'll start back with Mr. Hannon. Where would you rank this film in your Tarantino filmography? I think it's uh, number four for me because the two other episodes that I've been on the, that I've attended the church, um, (laughs) you know, I had the the first three films as my top three. And, uh, you know, even though there's, Sometimes I go through fucking times that I'll be watching other shit like crazy. Yeah, I'll put it at number four still. Mr. Palmer, I do believe we know your answer, but you know what? I'm going to give you a chance because you may have changed your answer in the last three seconds. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I haven't. I think it's head and shoulders, my favorite, with Jackie Brown and, and, and Pulp Fiction below it. Breaking news, I've now watched Hateful Eight. I hadn't watched it when I came on before, and that's holding them all up. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> but yeah no i t- to me it, i i do enjoy most of his other movies a lot 
yeah but there's just something about this one i just think everything just works certainly in this one there's not a scene i detest and that's a rare for in anything Oh, that's strong praise from Mr. Palmer. Really rare. Professor yeah. Palmer, I apologize. Oh, I forgot don't. your proper, <laughs> proper Asian cinema film club nomenclature. My good man, Mr. Elwood. Where's it ranked, my friend? Uh, well, obviously going back to when I made my first appearance on the uh, church back when we were doing Death Proof. Um, Death Proof. And I to remember, and it's like if back then I ranked um, Bilbo as, as my favorite of the time two movies. And when I rank rank it, I view it as one piece, even though I've obviously said that it's two separate movies. It's for ranking purposes, it's one film. So I'm not gonna have, oh well part two's down here and it just gets confusing. But yeah, so my favorite uh, Tarantino movies is it's still Kill Bill volume, uh, volume one, Group Pacific, and uh, then Death Proof, which and as I said to you before, is that when you look at things like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, they're so part of the pop culture zeitgeist that yeah. When you watch it, you're not really watching them because you know them so well. It's the same way if you watch like Die Hard or like Guns and Navarone or anything that you've seen so much, you just love like watching it because you're looking to hit beats. And like if you watch George, you just want to watch it because you want to see Robert Shaw get eaten by the shark or the kid get eaten on the lilo <laughs> or the shark go into um into the pond or just an excuse to watch Jaws too. Well you end up on the same thing. You, with... Are you are you you want to say no, this is a scar. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah, we've uh, said with uh, Kill Bill and uh, said with, with Death Roof because they're not like you haven't seen like five hundred shows just do oh here's our Kill Bill reference. You haven't seen like the Simpsons aren't doing a reference to Death Proof, but they are doing one to Pulp Fiction. They even did Reservoir Dogs that did Itchy and Scratchy, where it was like, it's directed by Quentin Tarantino, and it's all like, <laughs> I see this violence everywhere, even in like breakfast cereals. <laughs> so that's, as I said, and with Kill Bill, it's sort of like, it's the one movie that's like hitting all the things I love. It's like, it's casting actors I love. It's hitting genres I love, and it's paying homage to films that I love. Um, and it's in many ways it opens the door even further, especially for ourselves in the fans of Asian cinema. I mean, we obviously cite for, we cite as the three films that we sparked the interest as being Audition, Ring, and Battle Royale. Jesus, I thought I thought you were going to forget that one that we did twenty five episodes yeah. about. <laughs> yeah, and so <laughs> when you had Kill Bill come out, you had a number of box sets that sort of like came out. Like we saw early to Lady Snowblood. We saw the Lone Wolf and Cub movies come out. Finally, we had a bunch of uh, Beat Takashi Katano movies like come out, and it's all because you have companies that are rushing to cash in on the Tarantino wave of interest that he's generating. Um, and you even had like some of the Zatoichi movies um, coming out as well. So it's really, there's so much like I owe to this movie, just both in like for hitting those homages and what it provided me outside of the film, because Tarantino just opens doors. As much as we like to say he's ripping people off or he's scrapbooking whichever side of the fence you were on it. When Tarantino taps into a genre, you can guarantee that a number of boutique labels who are then going to be looking and going, okay, what was he referencing here? And how quick can we get a copy out on DVD? Um, <laughs> so it's a win-win situation, especially for like genre fans, that we get to see a lot of movies that otherwise wouldn't happen unless they got remade, which is the only other way that uh, a lot of films at the time, especially in like the 90s and the early 2000s, would get released. It's sort of like, the only reason we got a re-release of My Bloody Valentine is because they remade My Bloody Valentine. So, um, Tarantino, as I said, by 
him doing tapping into like the genres he does with Kill Bill One, it just meant that we got a whole bunch of um, stuff that we wouldn't have otherwise seen them on very cheap labels like Tokyo Bullets, which were like really awful copies. But the fact we were getting the films is the key thing here. So silly rabbit tricks are for kids. What I like to do on these, and this is Mr. Palmer's first. We've had I was Mr. Jones. I said he was on the. 10th, no, 15th, sorry, 15th anniversary of Death Proof, and Mr. Hannon was on the 25th anniversary episode of Jackie Brown. Mr. Palmer's making his first anniversary episode, but we talk about some of the tropes that we find in these films, and the first one is genre blending, and there's little films that are as genre blended as this one. Now, while Tarantino is famous for playing around in various genres like black exploitation, car exploitation, spaghetti western, kung fu flicks, war movies, and action films, Kill Bill is arguably his largest genre blending film. I mean, he sprinkles, as we said, samurai films, kung fu flicks, the spaghetti western, and action movies into what I would, you know, I would like to say is an explosive cocktail of uh, fucking awesomeness. Now, what genre that Mr. QT is playing with in this film was your favorite, and, in your belief, has anyone else so adeptly been able to combine genres in their films so seamlessly? I will start with, I believe, you, Mr. Palmer. I believe you're up next on the roulette wheel. Okay, I've got an answer. So, so I think I've said it at, the, at my beginning bit. It's, it's when we move into the manga, that there's the anime section. And to be fair, he's outsourced that. So people who know what they're doing. Agreed. Yeah. And to, Smartly. Be, and to be fair, he is he's riffing on what happened in the Lady Snowblood film, which is based on a manga. Mm-hmm. And they put pages of the manga up and to, 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 to give you some shortcuts. But I just wasn't expecting it. I mean, I probably wasn't consuming social media. I mean, the so, what social media was, was very different at the time. Um, I certainly wasn't. I had a three-year-old and a one-year-old kid at the time. I was not consuming stuff in the same way i just saw the posters at the cinema and that's why i went so i wasn't expecting that it blew my mind and actually you see he he does he likes to work in what we call genre cinema right all those sort of films which tend to have cult audiences or or, or very dedicated audiences that films tend to live in that way and not many people in the west do it what i would say is this is not un, as unusual say in korean cinema where films will take wild left turns <laughs> halfway through a film and it'll start off as a comedy and it'll end up being a sick girl movie, you know, like all the jokes and then the girl dies of cancer. You know, that kind of shit happens <laughs> quite a lot. Um, there's one, it's called The Divine Move. Um, and it's basically about this guy that's, the guy that plays Go, you know, like the Chinese board game, but it turns into this action adventure movie. <laughs> and, and so they, I, I'm kind of, and maybe that's why I was a, bit more easy with it i know you know, the, you know the people that you met in the bathroom that said um what the hell was that shit <laughs> i think maybe they couldn't get their minds around the fact that this was several you know the the, the the fight at the beginning between um copperhead and uma can't remember, the bride there we go um is very different to the big fight at the end which is again reminds me of a load of although it's japanese it's, it's still reminding me of things like the the, the infight in come dine with me and then again, if we extend it to two, there's a whole sequence in two, which is like a Shaw Brothers movie with the training montage. But then they'll do something extra. So he, he kind of modernizes it, he updates it, he puts his own stamp on it. That's what I think is kind of interesting. So in terms of it being whiplashed around different genres, I'm groovy with that. In terms of, does anybody else in the West do it? Probably, but no one to the same to the same level, certainly. And, and, and I would say in these two movies, 
this is this is the apex of what he's doing. Every other one, I don't think he messes around with it. You're going to tell me I'm wrong, but he, he tends to stick in that genre for the other ones. Mr. Elwood. My favourite genre he taps into here is clearly the pop samurai genre, uh, which is obviously things such as Lady Snowblood, uh, Baby Cart, and Peril. A lot more from all that uh, sort of things, because obviously when it comes to samurai movies, you have like the highbrow stuff, such as like Kurosawa, and you know, and then you have like um, the we'll, we'll begin to the lowbrow alternative, the pop samurai stuff, which is like the Monty Python guises of bright red blood and. People being having limbs hacked off, fantastical characters. Um, and a lot of them, he does obviously reference, he taps into a lot of those uh, over the course of the film. And I think, as I said, it's there's something about the fact, as I said, the fact that the bride's weapon of choice is the samurai sword. She's going in having sword fights with people with hatchets and stuff. It's not like uh, other, mo- other revenge movies where everyone is going to be like arms to the teeth and she's going to go in with a sword, which is stupid. Or it's, as I said, there's the, none of that. Instead, everyone is like using very sort of Eastern weapons. So like the Crazy Eights are all a bunch of like hatchets and swords, which obviously they have no clue about. And they also have very poor quality swords, as we see when uh, Itori Hanzo Steel meets with uh, <laughs> with, their, with their steel. The other genre I really like in here is the revenge uh, genre aspects because we've seen revenge movies across many different genres. It's just the idea of someone being messed with and then going methodically working their way through to the number one person who ruined their day. And I think, as I said, it's those two genres that work so well hand in hand. Obviously, the pop samurai thing gives us the action beats and the framework obviously being provided by the revenge genre here. So, But in terms of Anyone else sort of like mushing up genres? I guess the only person would be Eli Roth. But again, he's more limited to horror. And at the same time, his favorite genres are horror and sexploitation. And unfortunately, he tends to think that, oh, I'm going to just be show a bunch of like TNA in my movie. And I'm going to be obviously tapping into like the 80s vibe. And I think, as I said, he, the film with Eli Roth, in, in many respects, is that he started believing his own hype, much like M. Night Shanahan. And while Tarantino still backs his boy, he's still like he's still the mental figure in Ross's life. I think, as I said, that Eli sort of like learned the hard way of sort of like what happens when you believe your own hype. And I mean, he created, he essentially brought torture porn to the forefront with hostile movies. And then what did he follow up with? It's sort of like, oh, clock, that's with the clock in the walls and Borderlands. He's now just like <laughs> doing movies so he doesn't have to go back to doing the nine to five as Tarantino was sort of like always stayed this lane. I think the only other person you could perhaps look at the same would be his brother, Robert Rodriguez. But him himself is more focused on filmmaking technique than um, sort of blended genres the way he was like back with the Amarachi movies. Um, he Since those movies, he sort of became more focused on like, how can I play around with techniques and like what can we do with like digital filmmaking and stuff so I think it makes Tarantino so unique in a way there's other writers and directors they have flair within their work but he's the only one that plays around really with genre. Mr. Hannon your feelings on the subject? Well as far as the blending uh, like Palmer said I feel like it doesn't seem out of place you know like I feel like it blends well together you know the, the film 
And uh, my favorite, uh, even though I don't watch anime, was the anime uh, part as far as like something different because I wasn't expecting it. So when I watched it, I just enjoyed it. It's like a film within a film, right? A little short film and everything about it. Like, actually, that's the part that I'm like, damn, what can I show my kid this? Because I feel like that's the fucking craziest shit in the fucking movie. I, I don't know if he's ready to watch that part. I think he could watch everything else, <laughs> you know? It's just crazy. <laughs> Um, as far as me knowing, uh, somebody else who does that, I'll be honest, I can't, you know, I don't know. Uh, I do feel like there are directors who do different films that are different, but you know, for me to tell you, like, I, I can think of somebody, not that there aren't somebody who just makes it a bunch of genres in one film. I don't have that for you. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, here's a question. I changed up on you oh. as well. Yes. What chapter in this film? was your favorite and I will tell you the chapters chapter one is number two that is where we have uh, Vernita Green we fight her chapter two is the blood splatter bride where we get to meet the or re resurrect I should say the great Michael Parks gets to come back as uh, his sheriff who uh, was killed in From Dust Till Dawn uh, we also get uh, L Driver's introduction as they're gonna and we get to learn that Buck likes to fuck so we get a whole lot in chapter two chapter three is the section you gentlemen have alluded to it's the origin of Oren so while the bride is trying to learn to wiggle her toes, we get the anime flashback of who Oren is. Then we get Chapter 4, The Man from Okinawa, where we get to meet the great Tori Hanzo, played by the amazing Sonny Chiba, and the whole mythology behind that sword. And then Chapter 5 is the showdown, where it actually opens with, we go back to Oren becoming the head of the Yakuza, her chopping off a motherfucker's head, and then we get the showdown at the House of Blue Leaves. So, Mr. Palmer, your favorite chapter from volume one now this is different from your favorite scene i'm just going overall chapter your favorite chapter from volume one my favorite chapter is the first chapter i think that film opens in a way that had me hooked from the first moment it's different to the rest of the film but it has both action and that kind of there's a bit of nudge, nudge, wink comedy going on as well. So, you know, some some things like Reservoir Dogs can be a bit overwhelmingly violent without humour. There's, there's more to it in Pulp Fiction. But that just got me interested. The fact I was going to be entertained with all this Pop Samurai stuff, I was going to be entertained with some anime, I'm going to be entertained with, like, a, a recreation of Lady Snowblood, blah, blah, blah. That's all bonuses later on. But the fact that that opening chapter that, that set of scenes especially that fight between the bride and um copperhead with the stop start nature of it the fact it's in a suburban house and it's, it's soccer mums facing off i love mm -hmm. that there's nothing else in the film ever really i think this, i think that also becomes a flawed bit of the both the films that other than owen we don't know anything about any of these fuckers right before we don't even know what they do as the as the five a lot of this film doesn't make sense right we don't know if they're really... But I just got the sense. I understood who the bride was. I understood that these were really capable people. It was hilarious. It was violent. It was fun. And I was ready to settle in for another hour and a half of this. Mr. Jones. Thanks from Okinawa. It's my favourite chapter of this whole film. And it made to speak some a huge mark for Sonny Chiba. But Sonny Chiba is performance in this film. The fact that he's continuing his character from Naguna de Gindo or Shadow Warriors, this is like the latest incarnation. Because throughout Shadow Warriors, each season of, of uh, Shadow Warriors, he plays a different generation of this character. So the 
when you go to second season, he's like the grandson of the guy who was in the first season then. Tarantino's mind that this version of Tori Hanzo is the latest in the generational line. He's this sword maker who's put his tools to, uh, to Ash and he's become a sushi chef. Uh, but at the same time, he's secretly been making blades because it's it's his passion. He can't stop making blades. He's just not putting them to... Uh, he's not using them for, for evil means. And the back and forth that he has with his... Um, his little sidekick is just so funny. And I just remember laughing out loud in the cinema. It's all like, when they're like, it's all like, if, if you were the general, you would be the emperor. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. When he's there complimenting um, her, her Japanese, it's sort of like, it's like, it's like, oh, very good. And it's sort of like, you can see that <laughs> Uma Furman is like genuinely amused by this interaction that she's having she's she's generally charmed by my chief who's just like on raw charisma here and it's it's funny because we talked about this before when we've talked about even like her in the street fighter movies the fact that his younger days he's like this angry gorilla man who go around punching people and as he gets older he becomes like they're a fine boss character and this is what we're seeing here he's sort of like just the uh refined sushi maker and he's sort of like and he's they're complimenting and the fact that they have this conversation where she's presenting herself as this tourist and it slowly dawns on them that you know both of them know who the other person is and they know why she's come to see him and like that clattering moment where he like drops the knife and it's sort of like oh i couldn't see a man he's like oh have you and it's like and it's like that's good that's good and it's sort of like that's Tori Hanzo, and it's like the recognition drop. It's sort of like, <laughs> yeah, the teacup drops in the back. Yeah, it's sort of, and the fact we can go from having this wonderful moment of playful humor where you've got these two guys bickering about who's going to go and get the, the sake or complimenting mm-hmm. on a Japanese pronunciation, which I'm not going to do now because I'm butchering enough Japanese names on our show. I'm not going to carry it across <laughs> into this show. And then we go up and it's sort of like you see his little display case that he's got. And it's sort of like, he said, these aren't just swords. These are like the honorable weapon. And it's sort of like, and the way that she's not like, don't go to him and says like, I need a sword. I've got stuff to kill. It's sort of like, I need Japanese soul. I've got rats to kill. You must have a big one rat. <laughs> you need a Tori Hanzo sword. <laughs> and the way he like goes over and he writes Bill in the window. Yeah. And he just erases it. It's like... These are very sort of moments that um, they, he's doing. And it's kind of funny when um, they, talk, they talk about when she was like learning to use the sword. And she said that at the start of training, that neither uh, Chiba nor Gordon Lou wanted anything to do with her being near the sword, but kind of trusted her towards <laughs> the end. So, like, the <laughs> last person they wanted to have a sword on set was Uma Furman. <laughs> I enjoyed that moment, the moment because, uh, as you know, I'm. No hair on my head, but I love he goes, I'm not bald. I shave my head. Understand? Yeah. And I'm like, that's exactly, yeah, that's exactly. I'm not bald. I just shave my head. I love I that. that. So, Mr. Hannon, favorite chapter. Which chapter one is it? Chapter four as well. That's also my favorite chapter. Yeah, man, it has a lot to do with, with the introduction to, to Tori Han. So uh, I love the psychic as well. I love the music. I just thought it was a beautiful, you know, like as a whole, like, you know, it's just, uh, I, I enjoy like all the scenes there and, and even build up even more the whole thing with Bill that we don't see. Even though we know it's fucking David Carradine, but the build up is just great, you know. 
And yeah, like uh, what Elba was saying, when he wrote the the name of the window, it's just more build up to like, yo, we all want to fucking kill Bill now. At least see the motherfucker, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite chapter. それをあなたにお見せしたかった。だが、あなたのような人だからすでに承知のはずだ。私はもう殺しの道具は作っておらん。ここに置いてあるのは苦行と思い出の品として置いてあるだけのこと。もちろん自分の作には誇りを持ってお
And I think even if if you'd had it like Copperhead number one, it still wouldn't have made made much sense. It's all like, why'd you go and get a a samurai sword to kill a housewife? It's, it it makes no sense. Whereas Ori and Nishi, it's all like you've got you've got a Japanese crime boss and a bunch of yakuza, and your speciality is blades. <laughs> this is why we're going to go and get a sword to go and uh, dispatch her. Well, I love as well the fact that it, we already know she's killed her because she's outside the house and already she's name is crossed off on the list. But we as the audience don't seem to acknowledge it in our own heads, which is uh, it's the cleverer trick of this rather than the order he shoots it in. Mr. Hannon. Um, I think it's effective as well. I've enjoyed it in all the films, especially when I was younger, when I had like this childlike mind and I'm watching Pulp Fiction and I told you before they killed John Travolta and I'm like, yo, look who's talking, just got killed. What the fuck, you know? And <laughs> then I get to see him at the end and it was like, oh, okay. Like I'm seeing a character that I like still alive just because of the out of order kind of played to my emotions. And Kill Bill was completely different. I didn't see it that way. I just saw it like almost like I'm doing whatever the fuck I want. Like I'm showing you that I killed Oranishi. Yeah, you can see it. I'm not trying to fucking hide it from you, you know. Like it's just like almost more mature in a way. And he's just doing whatever he knows is going to give us in his mind the best film, you know, in in that order. And I think it, it worked perfect, you know. Mr. Palmer. To be honest, I think Edward's already said this, but I don't think Kill Bill's particularly out of order other than what they've done for the flow, right? And they they move the the, 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 the second kill first because the movie needs that the build-up to the rest of it. And you could almost watch it and not realise that that's out of order as well. Yeah, that that's possible. I guess, and the, the film he's riffing on the most, Lady Snowblood, which I'll keep going on about, is way more non-linear than anything that's going on in Kill Bill. That's full of flashbacks and moments that you're not too sure what when they're happening. So he's he's being true to his source as well. But yeah, I mean, we need to, I'm just thinking like something like Pulp Fiction. There's way more stuff that's going on because lots of things are happening contemporaneously, aren't they? And that that's why he's doing it. And obviously in Jackie Brown, he does the whole Rashomon thing as well. So there's nothing. Um, I don't think there's anything that was particularly difficult in this one. It's 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 for a matter of pacing the entire movie. Maybe the second one could have done with a bit more of it. <laughs> it might have uh, might have stopped it stumbling <laughs> to a fault, but we'll talk about that in six months, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, actually, if you do go in order of just volume one, it would start off with Oren Ishii's origin story. That would be the start. We would then flash to her getting shot and killed at the beginning of the movie, to her being in the hospital bed and almost being killed by L, to her waking up and almost being raped again by Buck, who came here to fuck, and then she fucks Buck. And then she would go to the man from Okinawa, and then she would mm. go to the House of Blue leaves and then she would go to Renita Green. That would technically be the order mm. if we did it in order. But like you said, it's so seamless and so just matter of fact, you don't realize all these little moving pieces like you kind of do in Pulp Fiction a little bit more. Like you said, it just flows for the story and it really does tell a nice even story and you know, I mean, I just paid to put it back in order and you're kind of like, oh yeah, I guess it does mm. go that way, but it feels good out of order because it just absolutely fucking works, at least in my opinion. Now this is where I get to ask you what your favorite scene was, Mr. Elwood. Your favorite scene from volume one. My favorite scene is the introduction to the House of Blue Leaves. Uh, where we see Ori and Ichi and uh, Entourage walking through. And we have the wonderful overhead shot, the God's eye view where we're going across and we can see, like, you can even see weird things like the bathroom and the kitchen. And you see the bat, the five, six, seven, eights playing, and it's sort of like you're getting the complete layout 
of, uh, of of the battlefield that is going to come, and that's why I just that's my favorite uh, moment of this, and the fact that it's played over with uh, Ghost Rat Honor and Humanity, that song which is now featured on every single talent show ever made, <laughs> because that's the Tarantino effect, and it's sort of like you have Charlie Brown and you have the hostess there, uh, the guy. Charlie Brown, really interestingly, is a writer for Takashi Miike. He wrote Gozu, and he did a bunch of other projects. And when you look at a lot of the Japanese actors, uh, often like Sonny Chiba's uh, sidekick is in a bunch of uh, Super Sentai movies. Uh, sorry, series, should I say. Um, and he's also like a hit, please, hit, hit, um, actor in like Sister Street Fighter and stuff. So it's fun when you look at the filmographies of these Japanese actors and stuff. They're all like key genre cinema players but you wouldn't think to look at it it's because uh, they're obviously not like you know Mikkei's cameo in Hostel where it's all like oh that's Mikkei it's all like but when you start doing the deep dive into their filmographies you realize oh wow this guy worked on Gozu uh all the rest of, on these little things that probably get myself and Steven excited but certainly when you have that that the layout of the line for the House of Blue Leaves and when you see Orenishi and she's walking down the hallway and you, as I said, you've got Gogo beside her, you've got uh, Sophie as well, and then you've got these fucking yahoos that are the crazy ATAs behind her who does these undisciplined <laughs> uh, guys in domino mass and Yakuza suits. And even when they like settle in and they're there just like getting drunk and making fun of, making general asses of themselves, the fact that Oren is like constantly this constant professional she just surrounds herself with dedicated morons and i think when you look at the house of blue Lucy, it just like perfectly sets up this character it sets up this location we're going to have this epic sequence in so by the time that we get on to her opening the back door because already she has her own little area that she has her fight in which almost like shifts into another film it's sort of like the it's like they jump from one film to another when she opens that door it's sort of like we're going from like the revenge movie into like a Chambara movie as we're going to have this fight in the snow and you have the water feature. But the House of Blue Leaves is up there with Jack Rabbit Slims or the Bob's House of Pancakes in Reservoir Dogs. It's an iconic location and it's given the time to establish it. It's as close as we get to the Jack Rabbit uh, tracking shot where we see like the Skeletric set and we see the stage and we see all these little bits and pieces. And I think it's a shame that Tarantino has never managed to replicate the shot. Even when we look at Once Upon a Time in America, there's a couple of times you think, oh, we could have done that like at the Playboy Mansion. We could have had a similar sort of shot. But the uh, House of the Blue Leafs tracking shot is uh, by far by far my favorite shot of this movie. Mr. Hannon, your favorite. So for me, it's in chapter four as well. Um, mostly the when Hattori Hanzo was speaking, and the whole sword presentation and everything, I fucking love that. I mean, that song, The Lonely Shepherd, I fucking still play the fuck out of it. Like, you know, I get people tired with it. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, that's my favorite scene. Mr. Palmer, your favorite scene. Well, this isn't a video podcast, which is a good thing, because there's far too many, it's far <laughs> too many beards on display today. <laughs> but um, those on the box can see that behind my shoulder, is a picture I have up on my wall of um, my Kokaji as Lady Snowblood in the snow with her parasol. And the fact that, yeah, it's, 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 it's that scene in the Japanese garden at the end, that duel, which is very little fighting, really. It's two people almost circling each other with ultimate respect for, well, one of them with no respect for the other, but grows it in that five, ten minutes 
I used to have such a crush on Lucy Lou. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> why. Don't. Was, You're not alone. Yeah, You're not in, alone. In Ali McBeal, I think, is when I remember. I mean, there's, there's things in this movie, like, I remember watching, oh, that's 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 the girl from Ali McBeal. And also, <laughs> fucking hell, that's the girl from Battle Royale. I remember saying that in the cinema <laughs> to my partner. <laughs> but, um, yes, it's just, it's just beautifully, beautifully shot, and it's totally respectful to the source. And there's nothing more fun than watching somebody shuffle around in the snow on those Japanese shoe clog things that they wear. But it's, I just think it's beautifully shot. But he doesn't overdo it. We've had that big battle. We've had that crazy battle with not 88 people, as we find out in the second film. But it's it's a number. Whereas this is, this is elegant and elegaic and beautiful and maybe a little tiny misstep with the CGI top of red coming off. I don't think that that effect has stood the test of time but still beautiful respectful but also modern let me ask you a question do we think and this is my feeling on it is the reason we have such a small almost spaghetti western dual type is she's cut her way through the underlings the ones who don't have what it takes and now she's taking on someone of her level and it's more thought out this is I cannot waste swings or parries or any of this because downstairs I can fuck these guys up with my eyes closed. I'm, I mean, I'm fucking <laughs> doing 1980s breakdancing windmills on the ground and cut motherfuckers' limbs off, and they're not, they're not even getting a piece of me. But now I'm taking on a real swordsman. My feeling has always been the reason it was so slow. Obviously, you can't overdo the spectacle, but it's beyond just the spectacle. It's the now we're two people of very similar abilities they're both of them know that the other one could kill the other one at any time so that's what i think it's always been a slower basically three attacks oren scores first the bride gets second and then the bride finishes her off that's just my feeling so i think there's two things one is i think a lot of asian movies end like that anyway i think quite often we have the big boss battle and it's over like that and then it's the end yeah it's it, you know we, we've had all that build up through like say through the underlings mm-hmm. it's like a computer game kind of thing right about the, the boss not, <laughs> yeah, not yeah. every computer game the boss battle is the one that goes on the longest sometimes it's just bang you've done it but getting to them is the longest that, that's yeah. right the other thing is all the main character deaths are like that right copperhead is shot there's a lot of build up but then bang right yeah. um L is disabled like that. Bud gets strict to the face from a snake. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. And and Bill, there is no fight. It lasts. Yeah. That was me doing my five fingers of death. Pi Mei taught you too. Five point exploded heart punch. Yeah. I think the death is something different. That's very true. But um, it's it's a thing of the film. It's a signature thing of the film. None of the major fight, the actual conclusion of them are like this. Just over so it's just setting it's almost like setting the setting the pattern that's very fair and also showing that she is the toughest person mm, absolutely she, she, the reason she goes through all these other people because she has to go yeah. through 88 or whatever it is to get to them and then when she gets to them it's like i'm gonna finish you motherfuckers um, and, real quick. and, and so. even even sophie who like i think we can which, I, which i'll get the feeling is that she's like the sixth one you know she's given an extra special yeah. well She's one-armed within seconds, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, yes. It's, it's, it's the, the, yes. The, more, the more talented the opposition, the quicker the fight. Your instrument is quite impressive.
Katana Matskara Shiraz. Anta Moskoshi Chikaraga Nokotero to Ikiro ne. Denakya. Gofun to Migo Matanayo. Kono Yonomi Osame Toscha. Which leads to this. Some graphic violence, which it wouldn't be a Tarantino film without it. Now, ever since the debut of Reservoir Dogs and the infamous ear slicing scene, Mr. Tarantino announced to the world that he was a big proponent of using violence as a plot device in his films. Violence is such a staple in his movies that he has become notorious for gruesome, blood-drenched violence, which when he doesn't do that actually sets fans off in a tizzy. I'm not one of those people, but there are those out there who get upset when he doesn't blow people the fuck away every five seconds. My question for you all is this. Do you feel that his use of brutal violence, when he does use it, is essential for the stories he's telling? Or do you find them to be excessive and gratuitous? And I believe we are now at... Frank, I think you're next. Yes, because we just finished with Steven, which means you'll be back at the top. Frank, get us your answer. Hey, all right. I, I always think if it's essential, um, you know, I sometimes I think that Certain people might make a big deal out of the violence, and, and if you enjoy film, you don't see it as as a big deal as other people who are critiquing do. That's just my opinion on it, right? On this one, like, the part that fucking scared me the most, or, or even watching the film again, is when she fucking slices the, the feet of uh, fucking Buck. That part, when it turns fucking slow motion... I turn into a kid again. I'm like, yo, I'm, I'm, I feel like something's coming up that I'm not supposed to see. And I just get nervous as it's going down. I'm like, oh, man, that part, that's the only part that I feel like, uh, you know, of course, I fucking watch it. But <laughs> I just, it makes me feel that. But when it comes to the like we you talk about this in a lot of the episodes, a lot of the, the, the violence is not even shown and it just leaves a lasting impression. What you don't see sometimes stays with you because you, you know, you make a bigger deal in your head. You, you create your own fucking movie. Like when you read a book, you're creating your own movie of it, you know? So that's my take on it. Mr. Palmer. In general, I think there's a case to be made that sometimes Tarantino maybe overdoes it with the violence. I think it sometimes can be a shortcut to more interesting storytelling. But in this film, it's the fucking point. <laughs> it's, it's it's you know it's 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 the films it's homaging the, the inspirations that he's getting are full of arms falling off and tomato sauce ketchup for my american friends splurting out <laughs> everywhere and, and 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 also i would say there's nobody in this film gets violently assaulted or killed other than the bride that doesn't deserve it. And actually, if we think about what her job was, obviously there's all that family in the church, obviously the, the bridal party, which will that we don't really see happen till the second film. But you think about it, the the all bit Bill and his gang are all horrible people. Every single one of them. I think we've got to assume <laughs> that the bride probably even was. The bride. Yeah. I mean, even the bride, yeah, absolutely. yes. Absolutely. Yes. I think, you know, there's a Yakuza gang, all 88 of the fuckers, they deserve it. Yeah. Nicole. <laughs> is the only innocent I can really think of. And she survives. Yes. Well, yeah, she happens to see yeah, she something. She stuff. Didn't and, want it to happen, yeah. And, and obviously she's riffing on the, the that side character in Lady Snowblood as well, yep. where we're sort of setting up this potential mm-hmm. could have happened in number three. But um, <laughs> I think I think in this movie, it's it's because of what it's riffing on and because of who's in this movie, you, you're probably going to bring up now 15 people that innocent bystanders, but I just don't get it. Whereas I think in... In some, it's in Reservoir Dogs, that scene that 
everyone remembers, the stuck in the middle of you, that's cruel because it's being done to somebody who doesn't, you know, who's, who would traditionally be a good guy, right? Being done, to, It's yeah. been done to a cop. And I can probably think of similar things in, in the other films as well. Yeah. But in this in this case, I'm giving it a, not only a pass, but it would be an absolute disgrace not to have that level of ultra. And it's ultra. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, it wouldn't be, you wouldn't be paying the proper homage if we yeah. don't have the House of Blue Leaves. Like, without that scene... It's not Kill Bill. It's just ah. But even right. when you know, that really Gogo is. stabs the Leary guy, right in the in the yeah. In, when sort of, <laughs> yeah. When she penetrates him, exactly. Instead, he deserves it. He's a, a Leary creep. <laughs> Go. <laughs> <laughs> He's on a list somewhere. Come <laughs> on. Done, yeah. He's on a fucking list. <laughs> Definitely. Mr. Jones, I know how you feel about this, but tell us anyways. I'm pretty sure I, I know how you feel. Yeah. I mean, having to violence. The two things that go hand in hand, much like foul language, is become so synonymous with his work. It's sort of like, as he often says, it's like you don't turn to see Metallica and tell to turn it down. You don't you know <laughs> what to expect with a, a Tarantino movie the same way that we know what to expect with South Park. We no longer, it's no longer sort of shocking. I think when it comes to violence, Tarantino tends to push things to like the most extreme end that he can. In many ways, it's more desensitizing to it. It's more got in tune with Monty Python, especially in this film, which is pushing it way out into another. Uh, as I said, it's uh, tapping into that pop song thing. So it is the big geysers of blood that we see here, and we see uh, the splatter everywhere. And when we look at his one real serious piece of uh, violence, which is obviously the ear slicing scene in Reservoir Dogs, the whole point of that sequence, I mean, the, the camera itself pans away when the act's happening, because it's sort of like, there's a line that even Tarantino doesn't want to reference. But the whole point of that sequence is, what is going to be the breaking point that is going to make Mr. Orange break his cover? He's been involved in a jewelry heist. He's spent all this time going undercover with these guys. What is going to be the thing that is going to make him break his cover? Is he going to like just watch some guy getting tortured? A fellow cop, no less, get tortured by this psychopath? Or is he going to... Is he going to step in and uh, do something? And we look at any other sort of acts of violence in the films, so just like Marvin being shot in the face. It's shot with such a comical edge. John Travolta's character being shot on the toilet and the innocent bystander being shot in like Pulp Fiction. These are very sort of like comical, sort of almost accidental sort of sequences. And with Kill Bill, as I said, because it is pushed to that zenith of like just extreme violence and even when, I think when we get into the Orenish fight, it's sort of like toned down to that one big impactful moment of violence because it's a different, the scene has to have the impact here and he knows he can't have the same sort of splatter that we've seen with like the previous fight sequences. Um, and the scene with the go-go scene is very restrained. It's the moments of violence in that are the impactful ones where she's breaking down this opponent. She's, the whole fight, she's trying to find weaknesses in those armor and by the said when you have those moments where you know she jams the uh the broken uh table into her foot and that it's it's a very sort of that's as close as we get to like a kung fu movie it's sort of like you find that moment of weakness in your opponent and you exploit it or you use that to get the upper advantage here and i think i said those moments of like stand-up violence are really sort of like more story driven than sort of like oh look at this it's it's not uh it's not like in hostel where it's sort of like yeah preventing this with like this voyeuristic glee of the violence presented on screen. It's either pushed to the extreme so it's comical, um, or it's it's shown so it has impact. 
um, to the story being told. I would agree, and I I mentioned it in the Django Unchained episode, and I believe on the twenty fifth or on the tenth anniversary is when you watch all the rednecks getting blown away with gleeful joy. It's cartoon violence, but when the slaves are actually the uh, victims of the violence, it's very dramatic. It's it's very impactful. You're supposed to feel the weight of D'Artagnan being ripped apart by the dogs. You're supposed to feel the weight of the Mandingo fight. When we're lighting up w- <laughs> fucking rednecks with joy, it's gleeful. You're like, yeah, there goes that motherfucker. You know, when he's like, the Django, you know, the D is silent. He'll he shoots him in the dick and then kills him. You're like, hey, or he's like, all you, all you black will get away from those white folks. Say goodbye to Miss Lawrence. She gets blown through the door. You're gleeful. But when like D'Artagnan, the dogs are sick down him. It's, you know, it's, it has the impact. It's no longer cartoon violence. It's, hey, this is real shit. This really happened. So I do feel like where he gets his detractors, his violence can be comical when it's necessary. But as you said, Elwood, it is very impactful when it needs to be impactful. Now, we're going we're gonna to get off the serious end of that part. We'll start again, Mr. Frank. Mr. Hand, I changed this again. So, ooh, I changed. I, I guaranteed the fuck out of this surprise, thing today. In your opinion, what was the coolest kill in this film? Holy fuck. Oh, yeah. That's a hard motherfucking question. Man. Motherfucker, <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. That's what I like no, to do no, for you. Oh, shit. Oh. The coolest kill? Coolest kill. Your favorite kill. It could be any of There's a lot. There's a lot of people dying in this film. Yeah. Like a like a truckload. You should have put this shit on Instagram, man. God damn it. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> it might be out there when this episode releases. Yeah, no, no, no. Say like to prepare myself <laughs> for selfish reasons, sir. I'm gonna go with the 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 one with Gogo because I I really like that scene. I wanna go with that one. Oh, and she takes the old table yeah, leg to yeah, the head. I go with that one. Yeah. Just when we think the bride's about to die, have her neck crushed. Yeah. Table leg. Yeah. <laughs> Table for yeah. two. Mr. Palmer, what is the coolest kill in this film? The first kill where you think. Oh, yeah. 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 So this is when um, when the bride kills um, Vernita with, uh, with, a, with, a, with a shotgun through the um, cereal packet. Uh, the, the knife. That's she throws the, the knife. knife. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. That moment. Because she tries to shoot her through the box that, of Kaboom, right. which probably... Affects the bullet and yeah, absolutely. Because that just you know we're, we're being set up to return to this fight later tonight, bitch, right? And yeah, and 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 and, and, and then bang! I think the only gun in the film. I can't think of anybody else who. Sh- uh, uh, the only Bill? only person who Bill? shoots a gun is Bill when he shoots at the uh, when she's sitting down, but he shoots the fruit in front of her just to keep her sitting down because she goes for his that's sword. Right, the... and, but he doesn't actually shoot her. He does shoot yeah. the. But I think that's the yeah. only and, actual then, gunshot. What about, the, what about the opening? Is that because we don't see it that you don't count it? I guess I don't count it. Because... Oh, yeah, yeah. When he shoots in the head. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. That would be the only official gun. Obviously, yeah. there's a whole massacre with guns that's happened. <laughs> but, but that's kind of... Okay, you know what? We totally don't fucking know what we're talking <laughs> yeah. about. Clearly, well guns do no, actually play a big part. And uh, we will edit it this but out. You know, but you know what I mean. You know that's what I mean. That's very But then... But yeah, and then... I love fucking knives being thrown and suddenly appearing in people's heads. It's like a classic magic trick gone wrong, isn't it? And I just love mm-hmm. that shit. And 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 it's a shocking. Yeah. Although they've been going at it for five minutes, yeah. it's bloody shocking. And I love it. Yeah, because Vernita just said, you know, in that scene where the, the bus mm. pulls up and it's that great fucking two shot wide angle and we can see the bus and we can see the two of them at the end of the frame and we keep doing the cutback and she's got that look of yeah. like, you know, like, are you going to do that? I got a child and mm. the bride's like, I'm not going to do this in front of you. And so we have this calm and we think, okay. And then the bride says, just because I don't have the, you know, I don't want to murder you in front of your child, we think, 
there isn't going to be anything. And like you said, there's going to be this battle. We're all dressed in black. We're like, ooh, all right. And then all of a sudden she's like, fuck that bitch. <laughs> He's like, kaboom. Yeah. And she's like, yeah. actually, though, everyone forgets. She kicks the coffee mug like a world-class <laughs> fucking athlete with point precision to get her out of the fucking way and then mm. throws that fucking knife. So that was pretty awesome. Mr. Jones, close us out with the favorite or your favorite coolest kill in this motherfucking bill. Okay. Well, Miss Han already uh, mentioned uh, one of my picks, which would have been Gogo again, the table leg to the head. So I'm going to leave that one to one side. There's <laughs> two that really sort of stand out to me, which we haven't covered already. One, Steve mentioned already, was uh, Gogo disemboweling the uh, heavy guy. And I think it's just a payoff at the end because it's sort of like, it's like sprays him like his guts all over the floor. And then it pops up with the voice of it. It's like, see, I told you she was crazy. And um, <laughs> the other part in already she's a uh, story where she kills the Yakuza boss who killed her uh, family. Boss Tanaka. It's sort of like, it's like Boss Tanaka was a pedophile. And it's like, she was there stabbing <laughs> him with the knife. And he's all like, he's doing it with such, she's drawing out so much. The fact he breaks his teeth. He's like, yes. and there's so much blood that comes out of his body. There's more blood out of his body than there's in the human body, but it paints the wall, and she has a perfect silhouette behind her. That's how much blood came out. And then we follow up with uh, shooting the uh, foot off uh, the henchmen as they burst in the room. It's sort of like yeah. it's like the wonderful production IG animation there, where like the foot flies off, and we see it's all like when she becomes like a, an assassin, and she does that amazing uh, one in a million shot through the limousine, and it's sort of like. You got the polit the uh, politician there who suddenly like has a hole in his head. So yeah, those are my uh, my two sort of standout scenes. But I think certainly the the go go um, kill is is pretty phenomenal. And I think it's just as I said because it's shot with that Tarantino comedic flair. It's sort of like ah, oh, see, told you she was crazy. And it's also a nice throwback. It's a nice throwback as well to the fact she was Chigasaw in uh, Battle Royale, whose uh, weapon of choice was the switchblade. Which uh, she jumps in a rather uncomfortable place with another lechy guy. <laughs> Although her character in Battle Royale is, on the whole, quite submissive, isn't it? She's, she's the running well, one, Well, she wasn't right? the original <laughs> choice, though, was she? Because the original Ooh. choice was um, the girl with the sticker, whose name I can't remember. And she was busy. So right. But the actress who played Chigasaw in to play Go Go instead. Yeah, because, again, in my, in, my, in my deep dive in Reddit, there are lots of people saying, "Yeah, yeah," because she's got that. She got that guy from Battle Royale who did. It. Well, no, in Battle Royale, she was the girl in the yellow tracksuit. Funnily enough, that actually was just running and not interested in the guy, and she wasn't particularly violent. Yeah, she, again, I can't remember her name as well. But um, yeah, if you, if, you, if you want to ape the nutty person, that's that. That's that other girl. That they have been to. <laughs> but yes, again, yeah. I I'm not going back to Reddit, mate. It's scary. Yeah, Chigasaw's the uh, as the, she's the girl running on the red in the um, in the yellow jumpsuit. Mm. She gets shot in the face with the arrow and then goes absolutely psychotic, <laughs> stabs the <laughs> the uh, the perfect guy because he wants to hook up with her because they're all going to die. So you know why don't we? Yeah, he shoots his shot. No well, pun intended. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he gets a knife in the crotch. Bill always said you're one of the best ladies he ever saw with an edge weapon. Fuck you, bitch. I know he didn't qualify that shit. So you can just kiss my motherfucking ass, Black Mamba. <laughs> Black Mamba. <laughs> I should have been motherfucking Black Mamba. Weapon of choice. Hey, if you want to stick with your butcher knife, that's fine with me. <gasps> Very funny, bitch. <laughs> Very funny! <laughs> Oh, 
Well, that will bring us to something that I have been doing on the second season that I've really been enjoying, and we talk about all of the amazing soundtracks. So we're going to talk about needle drops. As I'm saying, as is well documented on this podcast and on the internet, I believe Tarantino is the king of the needle drops. And once again, he delivers in this film. In fact, I feel he ups his game as this time around, he starts to cherry pick scores from other films to put alongside his favorite music selections. Now, I know me asking you this question is similar to when I ask you to rank his films, but fuck it, we are going to ask it anyways. Where does this soundtrack, volume one that is, rank for you? And Steven, you are up first on the roulette oh, wheel. Oh, God. Lists, lists, lists. This is such a man thing to do, isn't it? Anyway, it is. It's the most, no, well, the most masculine I mean, thing yeah. I'll do today is list things. Right. I think yes. it's number th- <laughs> I think it's number three. Right. I think okay. I think the Reservoir Dogs soundtrack. I'm just thinking about the ones I actually went and bought. I'm I'm talking about the sort of the the yep. soundtrack rather than the OST, right? The score. Yeah, yeah. not sure. Yes. So mm-hmm. I think Reservoir Dogs is one I've got behind me somewhere and I'll listen to it again and again and you know, they, he's turned um, stuck in the middle with you into. He's given it a, not just a second life, but it's given it an afterlife. It's hundred percent. I think some of the things we can say about Pulp Fiction, but this one has got a Nazi, a Nazi, a Nazi Sinatra. That's a completely different thing. A Nancy Sinatra <laughs> song that he's brought back to life. It's got um, it's got the theme from Ironside, which is riffed in so many other places now that noise i got bit of quincy jones yeah and it's got um what's the other thing i love in it oh and it's got the five six seven eights that's the only time i'm going to sing for you but i think it's really good i just don't think it's quite as iconic as the other two but it's close Very but fair. it's close and and I, I don't think i would put any of the other movies in that same grouping yeah mr jones your feeling on what he said and where does it rank for you uh, well, Pulp Fiction is still my all-time favorite of the soundtracks. This one, I got back and forth because I really like the Death Roof soundtrack as well, which I think is really overlooked. But this uh, soundtrack I did play a lot of when I when I got it, even though it's missing a couple of tracks, um, such as it doesn't feature I'm Blue by the 5678. It features Woohoo, which was a cover. Everyone seems to think it was like one of their original composers. Uh, but yeah, it's... I think when you look at the sort of soundtracks, this is one sort of like one of the stronger ones. Uh, Jackie Brown certainly has its moments, but like Reservoir Dogs, has the set tracks on the have you reaching for the skip button because you've heard them so many times, or you just uh, just don't connect with them. But uh, with this one, there's some real sort of standouts on it. I think the only track I really sort of skip on it is uh, Ota Oranishii, which is by Reza, which just feels like an inspired by track rather than something that belonged on the soundtrack. But, I mean, he did... He's so key to this soundtrack working so well because, you know, the key component of the Wu-Tang Clan is the fact that that big kung fu... So the fact that he's, like, borrowing samples from different movies. He's basically doing what Wu-Tang do, but was taking, like, sound effects from, like, you know, Flash and Braids and um, Five Things of Death, which is obviously why we have the Ironside theme because uh, in Five Things of Death, when he does the Charles of the Chi, so it's a glowing finger. So we have the Ironside music. So while it seems like a weird Tarantino nod, it's actually him just giving reference to Five Things to Death rather than like, oh, look, here I can put the Green Hornet theme in or here I can put the Ironside theme in and uh, a Bernard Herrmann score and like the things when you have things like The Lonely Shepherd and stuff. But with some of these tracks, you think that I don't think would have got any traction at all, but because they would have been in a Tarantino movie, they have like suddenly more traction than they would have otherwise. But in terms of like the, I think 
this was like the one of the last good soundtracks that myself Tarantino did. I think everything that followed, like Glorious Bastards, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and stuff, just never sort of reached the heights. And this was sort of like the uh, beginning of the the drop off, really. I think Death Proof came after this, didn't it? So after this, yes, yeah, Death, Death Proof is yeah. like the edge, and then everything else is just the abyss. <laughs> soundtracks when it comes to Tarantino, and then they're they're good in the film, but they're not. Well, I have one in the background. Fair, fair. You might be wrong, but it's fair either way. <laughs> Mr. Hannon, where does this motherfucker rank for you? You know, for me, I just think about my favorites, the one that I listen to the most. And uh, the soundtrack I listen to the most in Tarantino is um, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, Death Crew, and Kill Bill. Both of them, you know, which is actually one, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's one full soundtrack. <laughs> Broken but uh, <laughs> uh, I, as far as rank, I'm not sure, but I definitely like this one a lot. You know, so I would say it's top four because these part of the, the four that I listen to the most. And, and like Elle was talking about, like there's some songs that get more traction, right? Uh, the Lonely Shepherd, because of their soundtrack, like uh, I might have mentioned it to you in another episode, I fucking looked up more shit for him because I, I like to listen to like instrumental stuff when I'm writing shit. So uh, this is a song that I listen to a lot when I'm writing shit, you know? Well, I covered this on the Kill Bill uh, soundtrack, Volume 1 soundtrack with Mr. Wheeler. And I will ask my two other Gen Xers who are here from England. You may not have got this over in England, but in America, we had the Time Life music series. And the reason I know Mr. Zamfir is because he's the master of the motherfucking pan flute. And that's how it was sold to us on commercials here is Zamfir, master of the fucking pan flute, which my brother and I used to make fun of all the fucking time. <laughs> we thought it was hilarious. Here it is 20 years later, and this motherfucker's putting on the Lonely Shepherd. And I'm like, God damn, he is the master <laughs> of the fucking pan flute. If you could have told me when I was a young boy that when I would see the Zamfir, master of the pan flute fucking commercial come on and them selling his 27 CDs or whatever the fuck he did, they always had him standing they're playing it like a version of the song in some awful background. He would be on a Kill Bill or on a Tarantino soundtrack. I'd say, go fuck yourself. But I'm the one who had to go fuck myself because Master of the Pan Flute, Zamfir, is on this fucking soundtrack. It's a very unique, you know, instrument of choice to, like, become the master of, like, becoming a master of I was gonna say the, the harmonica like... or the triangle or... <laughs> Or the ukulele. It's it's more of a. I mean, who else is there on the pan flute besides him? Like, who's who's like, next? Who's the next? Like you're not really going to go and impress him. anyone with a pan flute. <laughs> the same way you're not going to impress anyone with a ukulele unless you're like, you know, Tiny Tim. I don't know if you listen to the end of that song. He does a couple of runs there. He does a little like a solo run there at the end. He's like, doo 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 doo. He's like, like really fucking from, selling here it. Here I am with people from a Chinese <laughs> restaurants. And the horn section is really picking that up more. It's not just him mm-hmm. blowing on the pamphlet. The bit everyone remembers <laughs> is when the the horn section comes in in that movie. So it's not even the bit <laughs> he's really doing. But no, I think I think we were just all and now we're with Kenny G here in the UK. Uh, so you, but, you yeah, have one it's, it's not a thing guy. It's not a yeah it's not a well and before him I don't know if you remember I was someone a little bit older than you but we had Aka Bilk who had played oh what did he play? Strangers in the Night on like a fucking piccolo or something, but he was famous <laughs> for years. And, and like even when you get in a lift or what you would call an elevator these days, um, and there's the, so that lift elevator music, it's quite often Ackerbilt on the old, on the old, <laughs> I don't know what it's called, flute or whatever. I don't yeah. know, he, but he's not a master of it apparently. Well, he hasn't got, he's he hasn't, he hasn't got a time flute. life series. Nice no, but yeah. he, no, he doesn't. But, but <laughs> all our grandparents had an Ackerbilt album. 
and and in the 70s it was a thing and he'd appear on Morecambe and Wise and stuff he's like our musical version of Bob Ross oh <laughs> well very well played well that'll bring us to what is your favorite needle drop Stephen we'll start with you oh god my favorite um on this soundtrack yes sir in the film oh, favorite mate, needle drop mate, that happens in mate, the film I love the bloody green hornet theme I love the green hornet theme when I was we used to be on like TV at I'm not sure it was the original Green Hornet with Bruce Lee and everything. I think there was a like a remake series or something. But anyway, whatever it was, I used to bloody love it. That and the Dick Barton theme tune are my two favourite sort of theme tunes from shows from the before I was born. And yeah, I, I love that, that sound of the trumpet going all over the place. And it's no, there's no contest. Mr. Jones. For myself, I'm going to go with... Uh... The performer who's actually Twitter friends with uh, Stephen, who I'm really jealous about, as Mika Kaji's The Flower of Carnage from Lady Snow wow. which I really like. I'm not going to say that's about honor humanity at this point in the podcast, even though that's probably the one track that I've like put on the most out of all these because it's sort of like, you know, when you're going to the gym or wherever you need to be amped up for it's sort of like that it should be playing when you get up in the morning you walk out of your bedroom and just do it slow-mo oh my <laughs> my carry along book is that, i don't know if you've seen uh the real it's that girl not pretty girl who's sort of like uh wakey wakey eggs and bakey i don't wake up <laughs> that's my wake up alarm it's like okay but uh no i like miko kaji the you know she's such a, a queen within Asian cinema. She's like basically what Michelle Yeoh is to like um, Hong Kong cinema. She is to Japanese cinema. She's in like the Drake Rock, Rock, Rock series. She's in the Female Prisoner Scorpion series. She was in the Lady Snowbird. She embodies so much of like the woman of vengeance that, that we sort of play. In. And she, the fact that she's also a singer as well and does has said this, this amazing um, song. And it's, as I said, this is something about that just so, like, really sort of sticks with me. It's, it's not overplayed. It hasn't really appeared anywhere else or been referenced anywhere else. And I think, as I said, it's just a nice little nod to the one of the key inspirations of the film, which is obviously Lady Snowblood. So he takes the key track from Lady Snowblood and transfers it over into uh, this movie and keeps it referential within the film. So other than that, I think it's uh, M. Blue by five, six, seven, eights because I just love how they're just, like, wailing that as they... Uh, as they come in the club, and she's especially at the focus on the lead singer, and she's all like, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> which is just uh, really great. Last but not least, Mr. Hannon. Well, my surprise you, man, um, is the Lonely Shepherd <laughs> by Zanfir, master of the fucking pamphlet, yeah. bitches. I love, uh, you know, I love the use of it in chapter four, and even in the ending when they use it for the cliffhanger. It's a song that I feel like um, you don't have to be like when I'm writing. It's not like I have to worry about this shit's going to make me happy or sad. It's just I can listen to it no matter how I'm feeling, and I just enjoy listening to it. So that's my favorite needle drop for this one.
right, gentlemen, we're getting close to the end here, but we still got a few to go. Now, you'd have to live under a rock for your entire fucking life to not know that this man, Tarantino, is one of the best, if not the best, when it comes to writing dialogue for his films. He's already won two Academy Awards for Best Original Screenplay for Pulp Fiction and Django Unchained. Now, while this film is a lot more action-heavy than his previous films, it still has plenty of choice dialogue scenes in it. How well do each of you feel he was able to weave his standard dialogue moments into this kick-ass action flick? And we will start with Mr. Elwood. I think when it comes to the, the dialogue here, it's a lot more subtle than it is in when you compare it to like, the rest of our dogs and Pulp Fiction. Even Jackie Branches sent us more quotable dialogue than, than this film does. This one is more quips. If anything, um, there's little cooler moments uh, such as sort of like when Raiden or Anishi have the, sh- have the face off and it's all like silly rabbit, tricks are for kids, which I think is really kind of cool. And um, the opening monologue, the Bob the Bill's giving way sort of like, you know, I could fry an egg on your forehead right now. <laughs> and it's all like, this is me at my most, <laughs> my most uh, masochistic and. Those little moments uh, are uh, where the sort of like dialogue shines or the way they hear set scenes up, such as the end uh, notes. It's sort of like, did, uh, Sophie, does she know that her daughter's still alive? And we just end on that line and it's all like, oh, wow. And then obviously we've obviously mentioned about any of the Chiba dialogue here. It's just really fantastic. But it's not definitely quotable, but it is. it has a good flow to it and it uh, rings well in the air. Mr. Hannon. Um, definitely, um, I think it still works for this one. Um, I think as a fan, it's easier to recognize, like, oh, there's still, that's Tarantino right there, you know? For somebody who just fucking saw this movie and never saw nothing else, might not appreciate it the way, you know, somebody, you know, that's a big fan. But, um, even though it's not a lot, I still enjoyed it, you know? He gave, uh, Elwood gave some great examples and, and even stuff that is just like, sounds like the speaking over certain scenes I still enjoy or even a fucking one line like when um, the, the way Michael Madsen says at the end like that woman deserves her revenge like just the way he said it that always stays with me like I remember him and his delivery of the line really somebody else wouldn't give a fuck but that shit stayed with me you know and last but not least Mr. Palmer yeah I mean I think Elwood said it right when he said it's got some great quips in it um, and to, to me and I think I've sort of spoken before that I do find Tarantino occasionally to be someone who takes advantage for standing on the shoulders of giants, right? A little bit. We call it scrapbooking. I think that was another good phrase that Elwood used earlier on in the show. But his dialogue is usually, for me, the the chef's kiss of it. You know, the, the, the Madonna scene at the beginning of um, Reservoir Dogs, that's what made me say hey this is this is different and i think he's sometimes he just manages to get these wonderful bits of dialogue together with characters that sounds natural like we would be having a chat off camera you know that kind of thing and and and, but this film doesn't have that but it has some great quips but then we've also you know we did bring attention to that moment with the bride and hattori hanzo in the in the sake shop where it's really clever you know it's, it's, it's being done in japanese and subtitles but it's really clever how that scene plays out that you think to start with she only knows how to say arigato and he's got his friendly tourist english going on and then they both end up talking in really quite complex japanese that's really clever dialogue and it's got more than just the 
dialogue to it. It's showing you about what's going on in these characters' heads as well. So yeah, I, I don't I don't think it's his greatest movie. Not the most quotable. And you're going to ask us in a minute what our favourite line is, and I had to go and have a little hunt for it because um, there wasn't anything necessarily until I looked at a big list of quips as they turned out to to find it. But the, the, there is one character who does have some fucking fab lines, so. We'll get there. Well, we're here now, so we might as well do it. Mr. Elwood, what is your favorite line of dialogue or monologue from Kill Bill Volume 1? The line of dialogue is, you say arigato like we say arigato. <laughs> yes, anything Chiba says in this movie is dynamite. Um, so it's just sort of like um, when he says, I like baseball. I just like him around the arguments. It's like every line that he says in this movie is just absolute uh, gold. So much the fact that Gordon Lowe doesn't get to say any lines at all because Sonny Chuba's stolen all the best lines. So he just feels the best thing he can do is to stay quiet and just go, yeah! and just really runs in. <laughs> he knows that he's going to uh, get all the talky bits in part two. So when Chuba will not be around. No, so he he's not going to get up a <laughs> Frank. Favorite line of dialogue or monologue from Kill Bill Volume One. That was that was hard for me to pick, but um, and I don't know if this will constitute. But then you said monologue, so maybe it's hard to honor, you know, lines of dialogue that are, were said in Japanese. But um, the line or the part of this monologue that I've always loved, and I love the way it's said, even though I obviously didn't fucking understand it because I don't speak Japanese. Is when Sonny Chiba starts saying the part, I can tell you with no ego, this is my finest sword. If on your journey you should encounter God, God will be cut. And I just like felt how he said it, even though I didn't understand it. And it's my favorite part. It's mine as well. (laughs) (laughs) I'll show my cards, even though I don't answer these questions. (laughs) That line always gets me. Always. I'm always like, I want a sword and let's bring it on, God. I believe him. Like he's I believe that he's being humble. When he says it, like, I believe every yeah. word that he says. <laughs> He's like, I made this sword so good, I'm going to cut some <laughs> motherfucking gods. <laughs> you look at the way he's presenting that sword, though. He's so emotional. Like, the way he's, like, mm-hmm. putting it into the uh, the, 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 the it's sort of like, he's not just, like, jamming it together. He's like, this is a work of art. This is the man's art here. And he truly believes this is, like, the honorable weapon of justice. And he's, like, puts it together. It's like, so he's giving it this power. It's not just a sword. It's uh, that's why it's a Tory Hansel sword, um, and the second that is a sort of power and justice that he you can't just like jam it together. You've got to respectfully <laughs> put the two pieces together. Well, it's the sword that will help rectify his mistake of training Bill. It's the sword that will kill Bill that caused him to probably stop making swords in the first place because of what Bill became after he trained him. The reason he made the greatest sword ever made by a man that would cut God is he has to be able to kill his, you know, most vile, perfect student that he created. And now it's like the reason he has such reverence for it is like, I finally made the thing that will undo my wrongs. And here you go. I was, I broke my blood oath to kill this motherfucker. So here you go. Mr. Palmer, your favorite. So mine is from a character we haven't really spoken about a lot, bizarrely, even after all this time into the podcast, but L Driver. She says this, which I think kind of sums up the relationship between the five deadly vipers and Bill. I might never have liked you. Point in fact, I despise you. But that doesn't suggest I don't respect you. Dying in our sleep is a luxury our kind is rarely afforded. And, yeah, and I think I think I think that, that yeah. just sums up the relationship between all of them. They can't fucking stand each other, any of them. <laughs> but but 
they all deserve to be treated with respect for each other, and that includes how they're going to die. The synergy of that is that not only did Elle not like the bride, but the two actresses did not like each other in real life, and they had to be separated and have their own separate tents at the world premieres of these movies. So... There's that. And when they both won back to back years at, you know, at the prestigious MTV Movie Awards for Best Fight, <laughs> Uma Thurman showed up for, I'm sorry, I forget the actress's name who plays Go Go. They won Best Fight. And then the following year, Uma and uh, Daryl Hannah won for their fight. And only Daryl Hannah was there to accept Uma, did not show. So, yes, there is real hatred between real life bride and real life L. Maybe that'll be the real episode three. Well, they'll actually kill each other in the streets of LA in real time. Yeah. その目的では私は成功した。私はこれを作ったのは達観すれば、お前の目的に同情しているからだ。運ぼれではなく、これは私の最高傑作。旅の途上で。神が立ち裸ればどうも。Not only does Tarantino get the most out of his actors in his films, he also has a knack for bringing back from obscurity stars whose career had long since faded, a la Mr. John Travolta in Pulp Fiction, and a la he has gone back into obscurity again. Now with Kill Bill, he dug up and got career best performances from Daryl Hannah, the late great Sonny Chiba, and the late great David Carradine, with the latter two having been mentioned before in two of his previous movies, one being True Romance, which we covered, and the other being in Pulp Fiction. Now, gentlemen, how surprised were you that he cast both Chiba and Carradine in this film? And what do you think of their performances in it? While I do know that Carradine really only is in two moments, we don't see him. It's all voice. How do we feel? And we're going to start back with Frank at the top. Um, I was surprised. I was surprised. I didn't know much about uh, Sony Chiba. But I was, you know, right away, my brother was like, yo, Frank, you're a fucking Tarantino fan. You didn't fucking know this. You know, like, he made sure that I knew. And, um, you know, I knew about David Carradine because my mom used to um, talk about the, the show and stuff uh, that he was in, Kung Fu. And, and, and of course, he was mentioned in, in Pulp Fiction. So I, I was surprised and I was happy about it. And I enjoyed both the performances. I mean, shit, chapter four is my favorite chapter in this part. And the whole thing with Bill, that how he builds up the villain, like, you know, almost like in certain, I don't know if you can say James Bond movies or... or or in certain cartoons, but they don't show the face, you know, it's like a reveal later on. So I, I enjoyed all of it, you know, so that's my take. Mr. Palmer. I think at this point, we expect it of Tarantino, don't we, to get someone back? I can't pretend at the time I probably didn't really know who Sonny Chiba was. 
probably wasn't where I was in my, I was probably still in my horror movie, Asian cinema world, probably almost certainly in, yeah, sort of Korean cinema, probably hadn't gone back and discovered that sort of earlier Japanese cinema. So I wouldn't have, I'd, I've known the name, I mean, it, but it, but it's not like Bruce Lee or Jackie Chan. It's, it's, it's like level two stuff. Carradine, however, is somebody I only ever knew in Kung Fu. And even then, you know, I don't really remember watching it. I remember it being on sort of David Carradine and Bill Bixby, are two people I remember being on TV on Sunday afternoons with the Hulk and Kung Fu. So I, I it was a, that was a surprise. You know, I've got to say at that age, I would have been what, 30 years old ish when it came out. It hadn't been somebody I'd even thought about. Like you say, he's not in it so much, but he's wonderfully oily and creepy. <laughs> and he's got a wonderful delivery of lines, you know, almost theatrical. Yeah. yeah way, when he when he delivers it, definitely more in the second film. You know, I'm thinking of, of the talk he has with her at the chapel, which is just full of fucking tension because you know what's going to happen. But he's just mm-hmm. it's like this, you know, he's, he's like part preacher, part salesman, part madman. And we've barely met him. We've only known him by reputation. Yeah, so, so he's marvellous in that. Shiva, however, I mean, you guys have you've talked about it. The, the moments that we see him in this film is this, you know, compared to what, how we saw him in The Street Fighter, <laughs> there's this guy, there's, 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 he's like this funny uncle, yeah, that, that's that's just playing with us and he's full of charm. And even though he's talking in Japanese, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter at all. Doesn't matter. We have to read subtitles. We get it. He's really good. So I think I think they're both incredible successes. But this is one of Tarantino's things. He he can get someone back. I mean, I know Elwood does love Death Proof, but I don't think it. I don't think Kurt Russell was really brought back from anything. He was already fair. Tough. That's very fair. Yeah. But um, oh, who's the fellow in Jackie Brown? Well, Pam Greer in Jackie Brown, but also um, Robert Robert, Robert Forster. Forster. You know, he brings them back. So it, he's, he's got he's got form. And I had never thought that Daryl Hannah he was bringing her back. I was just always think I'm always surprised when she just turns up in so many films. Period. You know, <laughs> but we we think of her in Splash and we think of her in Blade Runner and you think she's not done anything else. But actually, she's been quite. She's around. She's there, but not. But I wouldn't have expected her in this, even though you know she's does the old thigh squeeze in Blade Runner. So she's not against dishing out some deaths, is she? This is true, Mr. Jones. I think the biggest surprise here is Daryl Hannah. Uh, Many of said you associate with with Splash in particular and that um, Dudley Moore movie, which uh... there's a Steve Martin movie as well, uh, where he's got the, the it's like the Pinocchio. Kind of thing. I forget the name. Oh, right Roxanne. Now. Ro- Roxanne. Roxanne. There you go. Yeah, Serrano de Bergerac. Yeah. Um, so she was. I think she was the most surprising uh, casting here. I mean, obviously, Derek Carradine, the proverbial number two, because this was supposed to be Warren Beatty's movie, but mental in conflict, and it didn't work out. And I think certainly Derek Carradine's stronger in this one than when he gets more screen time in number two. I think he's certainly an actor. The less is more with him. So the less we got to see Derek Carradine, the better his uh, character was. And Obviously, when you look at people like Gordon Liu, Sonny Chiba, I mean, they're obviously working respectfully in their native homeland, so, but it was exciting to see see them be brought to a larger audience who would not have uh, discovered them otherwise. But I think Sarah Hannah is certainly the most exciting um, member of this cast that you wouldn't expect. And I would say to an extent, Lucy Liu as well, is the fact that you get to see Lucy Liu do the first of a string of sort of like psychotic bosses because she did this and with the Iron Fist as well, which was... Again, uh, or any she role, so but I mean, as I said, when you look at Derek Carradine, I mean, 
even back with Kung Fu. I mean, that was supposed to be a Bruce Lee project, but they took it off Bruce Lee and gave it to David Carradine. And that's where it doesn't make much sense. This white guy doing martial arts in the Wild West. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we do here in America. We whitewash things. So, um, but no, I think I think Daryl Hannah's the the ex, the exciting one here, the same way that Robert Forrest is the the exciting one in, um, in Jackie Brown. Obviously, I mean, you could argue for Pam Greer, but. It, depending on what you're watching, I mean, obviously, Pangrea was working long after the black exploitation period. She was doing a lot of like films and uh, TV, but if it depends on how much genre cinema you watch to realize that Pangrea was still working, really. So, but uh, yeah, I think for my vote is definitely for Daryl Hannah, who I think is phenomenal in this movie. And like many people whose careers, uh, Tarantino Resurrects failed to replicate it afterwards, as we saw with like, you know, Travolta. And yeah, Travolta had their longest run, he, he was able to ride it out through the 90s for sure. He was in a lot in the 90s. He really did. He, I mean, he faced off and Broken Arrow, and he yeah. was in like a whole it's bunch just, of it's movies. Just when he made enough money to make Battlefield Earth, it all went to shit, right? I was going to say, <laughs> Battlefield Earth was the fucking crack in the earth, and he fell through it hard with that fucking dreadlock thing, Anna. It's whenever you like come out as a Scientologist, you, you just suddenly become weird. Because, like, like, Tom Cruise comes out. Well, I mean, it's helped Tom Cruise. Well, Tom Cruise he came he out seems to be invincible now. And then he's, like, bouncing on Oprah's couch. But when he chases publicist, they sort of push the Scientology thing to the background. It's like, yeah, okay, we know you're, to- you're a Scientologist, but we have to put that to one side and not, not mention it as much. That's why he does the stunts. So you'd say, pay no attention to the <laughs> to the man behind the curtain. He just, no he more just Oprah, taps bro. into the fact <laughs> he, can, he can run really well. And that's what, that was what he just... Dis- practice with now he's just like the guy who runs it's like oh look at him go he he is the usain bolt of actors when it comes to running i think he could beat almost anyone in a foot race all right frank who was your favorite side character from vine one does um good grave marie count as a side character because you bet your sweet ass he does i definitely like that even like the all the sunglasses on the fucking car mr earl mcgraw earl mcgraw that's my pick. <laughs> there was such joy when I saw him come back because yeah. obviously I enjoyed his brief moment in From Dust to Dawn, but then he comes back seven years later and he's in, and then he's again in Death Proof. And obviously plays two characters in this, which we'll talk about in the second one next year, but that was supposed to be Ricardo Montalban's character when he plays in a part two and he wasn't there for the reading and he ended up getting Esteban Viejo and they ended up still having to pay Ricardo Montalban because he was hired yeah. for us. So they paid him and they got him to do it. So yeah, it's too bad he's gone. He's, he was amazing. But his son who plays OB in the yeah. hate play, which is the poster behind me that none of you can see since this is the audio medium and not a video medium. But if you could see it, he plays OB and he was also son number one in the film. But yeah, so yours is Mr. Earl fucking McGraw. May he long live in great peace. Mr. Palmer, your favorite side character. There's only one. It's Gogo Yabari, who almost steals the movie in about four scenes. And, you know, she's got great lines, a fantastic... I mean, she's just a credible-looking person. There's no other Japanese person looks like her. And, you know, it's obviously special because I've seen Battle Royale and, and, and some other <laughs> things that she's been in. But I, And I've seen her in other stuff. But, yeah, in, I just think she she's just so memorable. <laughs> just her character, even though it's kind of a bit fetishized and maybe, you know, killer Japanese schoolgirl isn't necessarily the most original thing in the world. But, yeah, she's just, yeah, see, see Well, it's not the most original thing in the world. She fucking nails Absol- it. Absolutely. Right? absolutely. <laughs> she is like the poster child for femme fatale. Like, you go, Jesus, you know, someone's attractive, deadly, and... Just doesn't fuck around. She, yeah, she, yeah she's a she's a badass motherfucker. Absolutely, she, and she's the closest to kill the bride. Mm. I think everyone forgets that the closest person to kill the bride is Gogo. Everyone else doesn't really come close. 
I mean, they cut her here and there, but the closest person that actually killed the bride is Gogo Yabari. All the other ones don't. Bill doesn't come close. Bud doesn't even get a but, chance. Say, but my, L Driver gets maybe, maybe a little close. Maybe but Bud. Bud does give Bud her a Texas funeral. One. He could have been, but maybe. He yeah. does, but he didn't finish the job. Gogo yeah. would have finished the job. Absolutely. That brings us to Elwood, your favorite side character from Volume 1. Okay, well, since Stephen already mentioned Gogo, I'm going to go for the deep cut here, and I'm going to say the female crazy uh, 88 uh, member, the uh, the girl member um, who gets snubbed with the sword, and we see a close-up of her face. Yeah, I know you mean, yeah. She's my fa- one of my favorite of the crazy 88. I think her and the, um, the guy telling the really vulgar story uh, in Japanese. Mickey, I think it's, it is. It's sort of like, it's the... And like gesturing his crutch, he's like, oh, and you see Sophie like giving the whack with the fan. I think so. Th- those two are quite the dub rap, but I think she has such a memorable dancing. It's like, so how faceless the crazy 88 are for the most part. She manages to stand out from the introduction right through to her death scene. So I think she deserves special recognition for, for that. So I'm not sure, Elwood, but that might be Yuri Manasse. And do you, you know who her? Do you know who her father is? No. It's Sonny Chiba. Is it now? It could well be Sonny Chiba's daughter, the character that you're referring to. She's, uh, okay. I think she's definitely in the movie. She's Crazy 88 number six. If we need to go back and watch wow. and work out, that would be pretty cool. That is pretty cool. That's that's the most professor thing I've ever done, Elwood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, um, uh, yes, her parents is Sonny Chiba. Sonny Chiba, and you she was are part of, um... Interesting, she was killed by the sword of her father. <laughs> God, Ooh, <laughs> fratricide, fratricide. There's some Edipal stuff going on, or Electra stuff, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but she, she was responsible for teaching uh, Tate, which is Japanese stage combat, to the leads in this film. So even mm. though she has a very minor role, and we... This very, when we look at the stunt work here, we obviously think of the guy's name. He completely was the guy who, uh, Young Wu Ping, who we did all yeah, like the Matrix yeah. movies. And he said he turned up and like Tarantino had already scripted out the fight scenes because normally when you have a script, it's like insert fight scene here and then <laughs> stunt quarter go off. And he looked at it and he's like, Well, what do you want me to do here? You've already scripted out the fight scene. It's like Tarantino's like, Tell me, so I'm like, Oh, we need you to, to use the Young Wu Ping magic here. And he's like, You've already figured it all out. Well, I think he also wanted to use his actual students because they're the ones who actually end up being the 88 that come in with Mr. Uh, Mo there. And, yeah, they all come fucking running out. And we obviously have the Australian chick whose name I can't remember either because my mind's going completely blank tonight. Zoe. Zoe Bell. Uh, we always mention her, but obviously we don't. We forget all the other key players that make it, that form a yeah. stunt team. She breaks her back in this film. Is she now? During this House of Blue Leaves. Yep, she broke her back in the House of Blue Leaves scene. Yeah. It's really great though when you look at that fight scene it's like you try and find the scenes where it's her and then uma the cuts yeah. are so well and i remember like tarantino really ragging on matrix reloaded which had the hundred agent Smith fight and it's sort of like fuck you yeah. we did that for real but he says yeah. that they had 88 yeah. even though in part two they say oh no there wasn't 88 he says that there was 88 <laughs> there when he's like constituting the scene and <laughs> you look at the guy surrounding her and it's like one of those moments where you think well how is she going to get out of this she's surrounded on all sides by people with sharp steel well if you're gonna if you're gonna replicate a bruce lee fight where he's always surrounded you know it's usually like a circle of 20 guys mm-hmm. How do you make it better? You have to make it to, it's like a mob. It's almost like you're at a rock concert and you fucking told, said, this band sucks. And then everyone in the audience turned around and go fight you. You've got to make it so massive that people go, okay, if you're going to homage Bruce Lee with a sword, because she's in the fucking game of death jumpsuit, yeah. 
you got to go full out. So you've got to have what? How many of our extras? It's got to be like Braveheart out there. You know what I mean? Like you've got to have more people than even Bruce Lee could have fought, and you make it you know somewhat representable or at least plausible because she's got a sword. Yeah. No way she fights them all off with with hands and feet. You know, it's just not going to happen. Even Bruce Lee, the great Bruce Lee, I don't think could have overpowered all those people at one time. But when you add a sword element into it and people getting cut, because most people would rather be shot than stabbed or cut. That's you will find that almost across the board, no matter what country you're from. I would rather be shot. Because it's quick, even though it's painful, but it's fast, as it's supposed to be cut or stabbed. So I'm sure Sophie Vettel would have rather been shot in the face than had her fucking arm chopped off. Yeah, I mean, that whole House of Blue Leaves sequence was my favorite action scene for the longest time until I saw Donnie Yen's 1 versus 20 scene in Ip Man 1. And then it was sort of like, oh, that's how you do a great sequence and just like how he breaks those 20 guys down i think it was just it's the only the the one scene that managed to beat what tarantino does with the scene and just how he manages to keep it fresh and obviously the western japanese cut it's all in color um and in this one we switch we have the as he puts it the nod to tokyo drifter so it switches from color to black and white and then again we have fighting silhouette these little moments that keep the uh, scene fresh and i think that's the the real sort of genius of, of the scene, not just the action that's happening. It's not how people are disposed. It's like, how would you hold an audience's attention? Because while we love to have big action scenes, you've got to find ways to keep things fresh. You've got to keep the audience's attention because we only have a limited attention span. And there's only so many times you can watch people being sliced and diced without mixing it up. So. what I tell you, Pop? It's like a goddamn Nicaraguan death squad. It's shit can and grass me more. You in the house of mercy. Sorry, Pop. Well, it's definitely working professionals. I'm guesstimate. Mexican mafia hits one. Four, maybe five strong. How can you tell? Well, sure, instead of hand did this. This ain't no squirrely amateur. This is a worker with salty dog. You can tell by the cleanliness and the car. To kill crazy rampage, though it may be. All the colors get inside the line. If you was a moron, you could almost admire it. Who's the bride? Don't know. The name on the marriage certificate is Arlene Machiavelli. That's a fake. We've all just been calling her the bride on account of the dress. He didn't tell her she was pregnant. Man, it'd be a mad dog to see that goddamn good-looking guy like that in the head. Look at her. Hay-colored hair, big eyes. She's a little blood-spattered angel. Son number one? Yeah. It's a tall drinker. Cocksucker ain't dead. But speaking of strong female characters, now, obviously, Elwood knows this because I've said it before with him, and I'll continue to say it, and I'll continue to fucking say it until my last breath, but Tarantino writes strong female characters. In my opinion, he is one of the best to do it, especially for a male, and Kill Bill is chock full of them. Now, they may be villainous, and <laughs> they may be reprehensible, but from Vernita to Gogo to Oran to El Driver, and of course, the creme de la creme, the bride, these ladies are fucking forces to be reckoned with. Now... I kind of alluded to this earlier, but the genius of Tarantino in this film is that he gets us to fall in love with and then deeply care about truly reprehensible female characters. The bride is a killer. That's just a fact. She is a fucking stone cold killer. The only reason we like her after we know she's killed hundreds of people throughout her career 
is because we think her daughter has been murdered. Now, but in the beginning, as you alluded to, that that scene that they added in at the end, which only really comes in volume two, is when he says, that woman deserves her revenge and we deserve to die. And then what they add to it when you see the full scene is, but then again, so does she. So I guess we'll just see. She does deserve to die. Now, we fall in love with her because we think she's lost her child. But when you find out she hasn't lost her child, you just realize she's just a cold-blooded, killing motherfucking machine, no different than the rest of them. She just happened to be the one they fucked over. If she'd fucked someone else over, they'd be coming after her. So that's what I think is the genius. Is we, it's that anti-hero that we're able to fall in love with. We were rooting for her the whole fucking time. And she's a terrible human being if we really go God's eye view of it and look down at her and go, Man, this bitch, is, she's, she's heinous. She's killed a lot of people. Now, besides the bride, which of these deadly females, and I have a feeling that we're gonna, some of you are going to side one person, but which of these deadly females in this volume made the biggest impression upon you? We're back to Mr. Steven. <laughs> i put you on the spot. Welcome I to the church. I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't ready. <laughs> I, just, I, just passed, I just passed the offering plate, and you're like, God damn no, it. No, no, I'm all right. My favorite, other than the bride, other than my crush on Lucy Liu in 2003, is I just fucking love Elle Driver. I love her in both the movies. I like her, I think, not because it's a spectacular performance and visual, obviously, isn't she? but it's because her character's been grabbed from somewhere else. It's been grabbed from a Swedish rape revenge thriller. That we may or may not be covering next month after you listen to okay. this. Okay, yeah, I won't go into too much. But I love that because, you know, we, we talk about it being, you know, this multi-genre thing. And, you know, we've got Sonny Chiba in a, in, a, in a samurai movie. We've got, you know, Oren is very much riffing on a whole bunch of Lady Snowblood, blah, blah, blah. And we've got this other character who's in this film. In the second film, we'll meet more characters like this, like Bud, right? Who's, who doesn't fit that genre. But this character sits in both movies, has the balls to potentially survive. She also, in the second movie, just takes the piss out of the whole Shaw Brothers pay maze. You know, she's just... I mean, she's fucking horrible. But <laughs> she's got some of the best lines and the best visuals. And the fact that she's been taken for some completely different genre. Although, I can... Um, Six Degrees of Separation at M, because Christina Lindbergh, who played the character, is also has a part in a very popular pinky violence movie called Sex and Fury, a Japanese movie, which quite clearly has been an influence on Tarantino as well in this movie. So maybe that's he took a reverse route to bring that in. But yeah, that's why I like Elle Driver, because she shouldn't work in this movie. She should be in another movie. There should be an Elle Driver movie. Yeah, <laughs> he should be doing his rape revenge movie and that's where he'd bring that character in but it works perfectly and the the animosity between her and and the bride are like no one else everyone else i get the respect in this one these these two women fucking hate each other and i love it yeah, it's very meta mm. as i've told you it's a very and, and, meta and now you've told me this it all <laughs> makes sense <laughs> elwood who you got Myself, I think, uh, Oren Ishii, mainly because she's like one of the most well defined characters. Every other sort of like female character in this, it's sort of like we get bits and pieces of them. It's sort of like, go, go, she's crazy. Uh, Copperhead, she's the best woman that Bill knew with a knife. Elle, she's the, she's the replacement for the bride. Because when uh, the bride uh, got killed, she shacked up with Bill. She's always been like in the bride's shadow, and I think this is what the feeling we get from her character time and time again is sort of like she's always like trying to emulate what the bride is. She's always trying to like get get favor with Bill. Or any she, she's her, her own woman. She did, did a bit on the as a contract killer. She teamed up with Bill for a bit, and then she goes on to become 
a crime boss of Japan, despite the fact that she's she's considered to have the wrong heritage, especially for Yakuza bosses who, if they choose to bring it up as an issue, they lose their heads. <laughs> they only made that mistake once. And as I said, just her whole backstory, she's such a well-developed and well-designed character. The fact we see her from like a crazy youth into her crime boss stature is almost like a Sonny Chiba like career progression we have we had to see in the wild days when she's like a child and she's sort of like wild and reckless and then we get to see her more dignified as the crime boss as she as an adult yeah it was it was fun as i said first of all because it's lucy lou and second it's lucy lou playing a, a yakuza boss is like what's not to like about the situation um and we can even light up in more in the fact that she you know She's very, as if you, as we can see in Stevens' work behind, she's more more in tune with the Lady Snowblood character than obviously the, the bride does. He wears the same dress, she has the umbrella and stuff, and it's all very sort of similar sort of setup. So she's like a the homage to, to Lady Snowblood and to Mikio. Yeah, already she is my favorite of the female characters. And I can shine a little light on you. said earlier something about how we always wonder why Oren was the one who got most of the play. And from what I I've gleamed, and just from watching it enough, Oren is her best friend. Oren is the only person that when she goes to kill, she actually has, when she cuts her, and she's like, are you ready? There's emotion there. She is really upset about having to kill Oren. Oren is her best friend, which is why when they say, silly rabbit, tricks for kids, anyone knows when you're best friends. They've said this before. They've gone back and forth with each other. They've parried this back and forth together. It's why Oren is upset. It's just why when she says silly Caucasian girl likes to play with a samurai swords, that's a button push. They're not friends anymore. Something Obviously, she decided to go against her and broke the trust, and they're no longer best friends. But she says that intentionally. You watch the rest of the film. When she fights Vanita Green, she can't fucking stand Vanita. She doesn't like fucking butt, and we know she fucking hates L. The only person she was close with was Oren Ishii. Which is why I think they kill her last, but I think it's also why she went after her first. Because she figured if she can kill, the hardest person to kill was going to be Oren because they were good friends. The other one, she was going to go through them like fucking a hot knife through butter. But she knew that the toughest one to kill is going to be Oren. And that's why we get her backstory. Because who tells her backstory? The bride tells the backstory. Why would she know any of the stuff? Because they confided in each other. They've actually talked before. They're actually good friends. And so that's the only reason. And if you watch the film, I think you'll see it more and more now that you watch it. But Oren and the bride were best of friends. And unfortunately, events of four years earlier, or maybe even earlier than that, because obviously we'll never know why it eventually fractured, because they don't just go kill her because she decided to leave Bill. You know, like there's other things that have led to the animosity, probably because of Bill. And obviously, after that, it all falls apart anyway. So, but that'll just give you a little insight as to why Oren gets all this play and why we know the most about Oren is because the only person the bride actually kills, who is the narrator of our story, is because her best friend was Oren. So, Frank, I'm sorry to mean to interrupt oh. and jump in front of you, but go no, ahead, sir. Was, who that was, awesome. was your favorite? I enjoyed that. That was awesome. It was, I would also uh, pick Orenishi. I feel like her story, the way it's told, uh, it shows a very powerful character. You know, as far as being impressed by a character, I, I felt like it's not just that she's powerful. She's obviously also feared. You know, when they show that scene, she's like, now's the fucking time. You know, like, like what the? <laughs> he's, not, he's not scared of these motherfuckers. They're, they're afraid of her. And um, I just feel like she is a power. I mean, she's, she's a bad character, like person, like they all are. But she's definitely powerful. So I... That's why I pick her. Once you 
rise up. It's what eleven years old, and you kill a fucking yakuza boss at eleven. Yeah, show her whole journey. It's amazing. Well, sca- what are you scared of yeah. after that? You know what I mean? If Elwood's son starts murdering people at ten, who's he going to be scared of at 21, 25? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he's that was yeah. not. I was doing that back when I was still in diapers. Like cutting this motherfucker's head off is is easy. So well, um, her nickname of the snakes is she's Cottonmouth, yes. which is a snake which is unassuming but also very deadly, which seems to be very fitting with her uh, personality and blood is obviously. Uh, Bill's obviously snake charmer. Joey's thought was yes, uh, he interesting. So. He was being a snake charmer, and that's how he passed away. But we'll get into that another time. So, <laughs> oh, all right, went, let's close it up there. with our favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, we have to. It was low hanging fruit. I mean, what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> oh, Mr. Palmer. Stephen, as his friends call him, who was your favorite character from Kill Bill Volume 1? I did our driver, didn't I? You picked your favorite of these extra ladies, yeah. yes. But, I mean, it could oh, be anybody. Oh, you mean just general you know I mean? character? It, yeah. General character from Volume 1, who is your favorite well, character? Well, it's L, but um, I'll pick another one. Which is fair. I mean, it can still yeah, be yeah, the same yeah. person Sorry, you just talked about. Who's you your, confused yeah. me with, with, your, with your obvious question that I didn't listen to properly. <laughs> That's what happens when it's 1 in the morning. My brain starts shutting down. I know. We're almost there. Um, I apologize. No, no, no. It's fine. I mean, my favorite character is the bride, right? The, the film, the film. It is your film. The film does not exist without her. I'm not as enamored with Uma Thurman as Mr. Tarantino is. And other directors. He, she is a muse for several people, hasn't she, been over, over the years? I've never really quite... I mean, yeah, I've got to be careful what I say, but I've never found her very attractive <laughs> or anything like that. She, she's all arms and legs and, and just, <laughs> you know, and she's written that fucking awful Avengers film. You know, proper Avengers, not Marvel Avengers. But she carries this movie. And usually in a Tarantino movie, there's a, you know, there may be some main characters, but they kind of, they're the core of it. But there's lots of stuff going on. Not much happens in this film without the bride being there involved. You know, even when we're flashing back to Owen's backstory, the bride is narrating it. You know, and obviously you've got a very good reason what that, what, why that is. But yeah, this is uh, how, how you, you can't like this movie and not like the bride, surely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, I mean, it's a strange thing if you mm. do. It's definitely some kind of strange psychosis. But if you, but like, if you I can, like a movie, but not the main let character. Let us know because I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear. Go through the movie every time, rooting for them to finally kill her, <laughs> thinking that's going to eventually end with she dies. That people put together, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, they just turned it on and watch her get shot in the beginning. And they're like, I'm good. All right, movie's over. She's dead. Mr. Elwood, your favorite character from Kill Bill Volume One. My favorite character. From Kill Bill Volume One, Hanzo. Hattori Hanzo, I think, is my my standout character. So, sort of like, I look at I look at other characters and I'm like, yeah, I like moments of these characters. And we obviously mentioned Dora and Lucia, and I've done my deep cut for them. <laughs> That's uh, in this episode <laughs> already. But yeah, I think the A star player of this film is Sonichiba's um, Hattori Hanzo. I think there's there's not a bad scene that he's that he has in this movie. All his his moments are fantastic and. He's not in it enough for me to think, oh, you've kind of overstayed your welcome. He's sort of like in and out. He does what he needs to do and then he's out of the film and he doesn't even like turn up in volume two. But you don't really expect like the people that she meets along her journey, all the allies like turn up and they like bail her out at some moment where she's up against the ropes hmm. and gives the thumbs up or something. But no, he makes the sword and then that's him, him done. It goes back to making sushi and... Arguing with his assistant. Yeah, they do a great job in both movies. We get the Pie Man, we get Tori Hanzo. The two the two Yoda like characters in the film, they 
They give exactly what they need, and it's a lasting impression. So, you know, like you said, don't let, don't stay too long. Don't stay too long. I might get killed, so he don't get to come back. He does. But, I mean, the guy's like a 1,000 years old. I mean, the story Bill tells was like in the 1300s. I mean, this dude was probably just fucking, he was glad. He's like, fuck it, man, I'm tired. I am tired. I, I can't take these, these Caucasian bitches anymore. Just, I'm done. I'm tired of training these motherfuckers. Uh, these Karens. <laughs> these are... Um... <laughs> When I look at Pai Mei, he's basically Jimmy Wang Yu, who, again, <laughs> held women in low regard and hated Caucasians. And if you listen to the stories of uh, Man from Hong Kong, where he's just like playing this James Bond character and he's doing romance scenes and he's picking flies in the air and eating them before he has to like kiss women and stuff. It's all like, you're just basically <laughs> who Pai Mei is, aren't you? <laughs> oh, Frank, your favorite character from Kill Bill Volume 1. I'm going to say Bill. And I'll tell you why. Ever since the this opening scene, though we talked about it, might not be the most memorable to everyone of all his films. It's one of my favorite opening scenes. I love the you know the dialogue from him again when she says it's your baby, and then bam, and the song. I just I love that. Love how he delivers his lines. You you know you guys were talking about he's the snake charmer, and then that scene with Elle in the hospital. When she's all freaking out and he goes, may I say something? It's like, he's such a, like, I'm thinking like he's a manipulator. Like, how does he get to them? You know, he obviously has all these different people who are fearless and strong. And at one point, you know, they listen to him, even though he's supposed to be this, this, this fucking asshole and shit. When we hear him, he's usually speaking in a very calm voice and everything. So I find him interesting, you know, and uh, that's why I pick him as my favorite character. Nani no mu. I beg your pardon? Uh, drink. Oh, yes, um, a bottle of warm sake, please? Warm sake? Very good! Asukai pong! Sake? Ma pilma kara? Hiru demo yoru demo ii da ro metta ni kyaka konen da kara? Eh? Kona aho, do aho! Nan de ori ga itsumo sake hakobana ke ikinen da! Chanto kiki nasai! Sanju nen ka anta sushi ni gitte ori wa sake hakobi. これが軍隊だったら、俺は今頃将軍だよってんだこの野郎。よかったね。あいつ、毎回将軍だ。俺はでんの兵かよ。いいか。俺お前は酒を運ぶ主役目なんだ。いいか。よく覚えておけ。この
huge. Well, gentlemen, I want to thank you for being on. And as we close it out, I'm going to give you each a chance to give your final thoughts on this film. As it turns 20 years old, which, holy shit, that got by fast. We will start with the great Elwood Jones. Sir, your final thoughts on Kill Bill Volume 1 as it turns 20 years old. Kill Bill is the, especially Volume 1, is the perfect embodiment of Tarantino tapping into his love of a particular genre. While we, when you look at the other genre films that he's made, they're not as pure in their the love for that particular genre, such as like Hateful Eight and Django Unchained, they're drawing inspirations from other ideas. Um, but with Kill Bill, it's, a, it's the purest distillation of uh, his love for a genre, in this case, Eastern cinema. But um, I think you'll see within his filmography, the only other examples are the ones which obviously came before it, which were obviously about, you know, heist movies or crime movies. And as I think if you're a fan of Asian cinema or Eastern cinema, I think then you just have this film will probably be like one of your favorites already because it would tap into like all the things that you love already. And it's just this time the scrapbooked into this, this one uh, perfect revenge movie. So... Well said, sir. Well said. Mr. Hannon, you got to follow that one up. <laughs> uh, this is a movie that, um, again, because I was coming from, you know, watching Jackie Brown and, and his other films, I wasn't expecting, you know, this to be up my alley, but I really enjoyed it. And it's a movie that I actually go back to a lot, you know, both volumes, of course. And uh, <laughs> no, but it, it's something that everything about it, whether, you know, when it starts and the feature presentation and the opening credits, uh, you know, the, the, the sound effects that they use, you know, the screen turning red when, when she sees one of her, you know, adversaries or whatever. Um, the, even the bleeping uh, of the name of, of Beatrix, I remember watching it. Uh, some, this is one of the films that I enjoyed watching with other people who were not uh, Tarantino fans, but they were just like, oh, some fucking action movie. Let me watch it. And, and they would, I noticed some people getting upset. Well, two people in particular that I know about the bleeping, like not understanding all this shit, you know, and, and I enjoyed even that experience of it. This is a film that even though it wasn't what I was uh, expecting, I go back to a lot. I do quote it. I do appreciate it. And um, it's, it, when it comes to Tarantino, I, I enjoy, you know, um, most of his films and, and everything to me, um, when it comes to film, it ends up being like a sentimental value. So this always takes me back watching it with my mom, you know, and, and my siblings when we all live together and, and, and all enjoying it together. So that stays with me, you know. And Mr. Palmer, Mr. Stephen Palmer, send us on our way with your last bits of wisdom, the professor himself, <laughs> on Kill Bill Volume 1 as it turns 20 years old. No pressure then. I mean, I think I've already said this is my favourite Tarantino film by quite a way. And it's more than that. It's like one of my favourite films. I don't re-watch films very often, like some people do. There's a handful of films I'll re-watch. Because normally when you re-watch them, you start picking holes or you're weird and obsessed about something. So there's, there's five or six. <laughs> Ghostbusters, I could watch that all day. Vertigo, this, maybe a couple of others. And I watched, you know, I watched them both back to back last weekend in, in preparation for this. And I... I enjoyed it as much as I did 20 years ago. I think I said it was kind of perfect. I liked every scene I have. Remember, there is one misstep in it, the, the whole buck thing. <laughs> um, I, I think yeah. it's a misstep for several reasons. It, 
it, it, it it's a level of sexual violence that isn't present in the rest of the film. This feels a bit out of place. Um, and also, how the fuck didn't they find him in the 13 hours it took her to get her legs working again? And, you know, everyone must have known that was his fucking car. So, and that's when I fell in that Reddit trap where you start looking at the, 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 the holes to pick in it. But you know what? Yeah, there's holes all over the bloody movie, right? It doesn't hold up to much scrutiny at all. But my bloody God, it's enjoyable. And like I say, it's as enjoyable today as it was when I saw it in the cinema 20 years ago. And, you know, lots of times I look at a film and I think, oh, I misjudged it in the past. And I like it more now than I did then. That's quite a common thing with me. With this, it's just held up like a, I would say like a fine wine, but I'm teetotal. So I don't really know what that means, but excellent film. I might never have liked you. Point in fact, I despise you. But that shouldn't suggest that I don't respect you. Dying in our sleep is a luxury that our kind is rarely afforded. My gift. Hello, Bill. What's her condition? Comatose. Where is she? I'm standing over her right now. That's my girl. Hmm. Elle, you're going to abort the mission. We owe her better than that. Oh, you don't owe her shit! Will you keep your voice down? You don't owe her shit! May I say one thing? Speak. Y'all beat the hell out of that woman, but you didn't kill her. And I put a bullet in her head, but her heart just kept on beating. Now, you saw that yourself with your own beautiful blue eye, did you not? We've done a lot of things to this lady. And if she ever wakes up, we'll do a whole lot more. But one thing we won't do is sneak into her room in the night like a filthy rat and kill her in her sleep. And the reason we won't do that thing is because that thing would lower us. Don't you agree, Miss Driver? I guess. Do you really have to guess? No. I don't really have to guess. I know. Come on home, honey. Affirmative. I love you very much. I love you too. Bye bye. Thought that was pretty fucking funny, didn't you? Hmm? Word of advice, shithead. Don't you ever wake up.
And that's a wrap on our very special Kill Bill Volume 1 20th Anniversary Retrospective. I would once again like to thank my panel of Sir Elwood Jones and Sir Stephen Palmer of the Asian Cinema Film Club Podcast and Mr. Frank Hannon, co-host of the Bachata Talk Podcast, for joining me to help celebrate and look back at this landmark film from Quentin Tarantino. I want to give special thanks to Miss Sin Electric, whose amazing song, Love Song of Vengeance, from her 2022 EP, My Crazy 88, she so graciously allowed us to use as the opening and closing theme song for all of our anniversary special episodes. Now, you can find the links to all of my guest podcasts and socials in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. I hope you'll join me again next week as my Cheeky Bastards co-host Steve Smith and Scareflare Records owner Sean Wheeler join me as we take a look at two of the films that helped inspire the second half of Tarantino's samurai kung fu western revenge film, Kill Bill Volume 2. Those films being The Bride Wore Black and Thriller, A Cruel Picture. Now if you'd be so kind and take a moment to like, review, subscribe, and follow us, the church would greatly appreciate it as it will help other fellow Tarantino fans like yourself find the show. So until next time, this has been the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. Do you find me sadistic? Well, I'll bet I could fry an egg on your head right now if I wanted to. No, kiddo. I'd like to believe you're aware enough, even now, to know that there's nothing sadistic in my actions. Or maybe towards those other jokers. No, kiddo. At this moment, this is me and my most masochistic. Bill, it's your baby. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production. <laughs>